still make newspapers? They do still make newspapers, but... Uh, I'm sure they're not nearly as profitable as they were in, like, the 40s. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're um, going to drink some more margaritas. It's time to waste away again in Margaritaville. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know where my shaker of salt went. Yeah, I don't either. It's lost in the darkness. Is, is that... That's Jimmy Buffett, right? Yeah. Does he do wasting? What's the other one that's not Jimmy Buffett, but you think it is? Uh, Pina Coladas. Oh, okay. You know that one? Yeah, it's if not, you like Pina yeah, Coladas. but it's not Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, I'm I'm aware of that. I don't know who it is. is it I don't either. Jim Croce? I don't think so. Oh. Bob Denver? John Denver? I don't think either of the Denvers. Denver, Colorado. Denver, Colorado. <laughs> Fuck. Well, no. Where does this movie take place? Uh, Nebraska. The, oh, okay. On the prairie. Uh, prairie Blossom? Prairie Blossom was the name they gave their home. Yes. Yeah, so uh, welcome once again to the Raincoat Report. This is Boss here with Jeremy. Hello. And this is our very special 10th episode celebration spectacular yeah it's gonna be we're gonna have fireworks uh yeah. face painting so bring your kids and come on down to the raincoat report uh warehouse <laughs> bring, uh, bring your kids bring them bring your family bring your cats it's a big old time down at the 10th episode centennial explosion <laughs> of the raincoat report uh yes it will be filthy just like the kids like it mm-hmm it's gross uh <laughs> so uh, yeah this is our 10th episode we've made it finally yeah how's uh how's everything going with the you we broke a we we broke the barrier, the hundred barrier. Uh, yes. So uh, we broke a hundred listens to our podcast. Yeah. Um, I want more. Yeah. Uh, you sent like an audience number two, and it was like nineteen. Is that yeah. just people that keep listening to it? Well, I would just say that we're still kind of figuring out what our audience size really is. Okay. But uh, you know. Yeah, we're we're really doing it. We're going upward, I think. Onwards and upwards. Do you get any numbers on the last episode? Uh, y- yes. Are they bad? Um, they are not great. Excellent. Okay. Well, let's just keep <laughs> going then and not worry about them. Yeah, I'm. You know, I'm not in. I, you, you know, we'll figure it out. By the time this episode comes out, the numbers are going to be wildly different anyway. So. Yeah, we'll figure it out. We mm. got this. Yeah, we understand what's going on. We're professionals now. Uh, more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know how to introduce this movie. In a, there's a lot going on with it. Okay, uh, so let, let's, let's, just let's start boss. with this. Today we're going to talk about Thundercrack. Thundercrack is a 1975 film directed by Kurt McDowell, uh, written by George Kuchar. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is crazy. 
Yeah, it has an entry. Um, I was looking through some of my books. It has an entry in the Psychotronic Video Guide. Yeah. It's uh, pretty good, like just like a nice little write-up. But then right beneath that is um, the entry for uh, Thunder in Paradise, the uh, Hulk Hogan <laughs> boat show. Right. So it's in good company. Right. So if you like Thunder in Paradise, check out Thundercrack. Uh, Thundercrack is hard to categorize. Um, it is an adult film in the sense that there is hardcore sex in it. But it's also kind of like a throwback character drama. Um, yeah. And kind of a throwback gothic horror. Yeah. It's, it's got like a lot of different pieces that come together to make a... Uh, very unique film, unlike anything I've seen before, really. Yeah, it was, yeah, definitely very unique. Definitely like a throwback to like uh, some of the early silent films and some of the early 30 films that were just, uh, you just have people having a situation in an old dark house that kind of gets resolved. And it's got a lot of those same, uh, I guess, tropes or cliches. Like there's a, uh, like there's a locked room that's a mystery. Right. Uh, everyone has like some kind of weird tragic past that they're constantly expounding upon. Right, right. Um, there's uh, do I want to say gorilla right now? I mean, yeah. Okay, there's a gorilla, which you know, those also like, and like murders of the room in the room org uh, stuff like that from the same one. So I like all those kind of films. So it was a real treat for me. Right. So, when we talk about Thundercrack, there's a couple of key names I've already mentioned here that are important to this film getting made. One of those names would be the director himself, Kurt McDowell. Mm -hmm. Kurt McDowell has an interesting past. He was kind of like just an independent filmmaker in San Francisco who uh, made several short films that were often sexually explicit mm -hmm. um not not all of them but a lot of them i saw some of the were those like some of the featurettes that were on the dvd because i saw some of them had yeah. some they had some names uh one of them was just called loads uh i didn't get around to watching it but it sounds great yeah i didn't get around to watching the short films either but uh yeah i would think that based on the title loads is probably pretty <laughs> Uh, self-explanatory but yeah, yeah i think uh i think the ones on the as the special features on the thundercrack blu-ray are uh all uh you know adulty but uh he didn't only direct adult films or uh, uh things with sex sexually explicit material mm -hmm. but uh he did uh he did good frequently yes so kurt mcdowell kind of came up with this idea he liked the setting. Uh, he liked, you know, black and white film in general. A lot of his shorts were in black and white. Mm -hmm. He liked the kind of uh, gothic ideas here. It also gave him, you know, he talked about exploring his own fantasies uh, with some of the ideas that went into this. But the screenplay itself wasn't written by Kurt McDowell. It was mm -hmm. actually written by George Kuchar. Mm-hmm. So, Kurt McDowell kind of had a, a general idea of it and a lot of the key plot points all figured out, but he turned the writing of the film over to George Kuchar. Uh, George Kuchar, along with his brother Mike Kuchar, 
were also uh, Bay Area filmmakers uh, that to this day still make little independent films shot on video, really cheap stuff. Um, you know, hundreds of films at this point in their careers. Um, we, should, we should check some of them out at some probably, point. Probably, yeah. I bet they're interesting, if nothing else. Yeah, um, they're typically not sexually explicit films, um, but you know they're not afraid to get into you know at least nudity and uh, you know violence and stuff like that. But George Kuchar and his brother Mike both started making films at the beginning of the '60s, and by the '70s, uh, George was teaching at film school, uh, which he does well at least was when the documentary on the Thundercrack DVD was. Uh, Put together i believe that was a 2009 documentary uh it came from kuchar is what it's called and it's pretty good but he's taught generations and generations of young filmmakers with his zero budget uh approach i'm gonna go learn his feet you should he's an interesting character i think we would get along maybe he would have a job for me perhaps i'm gonna go out west it's time to pack it, pack up everything and yeah, head just, out west. Just like my ancestors, I guess, didn't do. Yeah. Since I'm still here. Yeah, you're um, you're not a, a gold rush child, probably. No, I'm a gold dust woman. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I can make it out west. You think so? I think so, as long as... Uh, I think I can make it out west. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have a follow-up. I just, based on my experience i think i would do okay uh, at least if i could hook up with these kuchar fellas yeah so uh george kuchar had been making little films uh lots of shorts and everything since the early 60s but at this point he was teaching film school and kurt mcdowell was one of his first students so that was how they uh began their relationship with george having taught kurt mcdowell in film school but when uh, Kurt needed to have the screenplay written for Thundercrack, he thought to go to George Kuchar um, and let him kind of have his way with the dialogue and everything else in the film. George ended up adding several things to Kurt's original pitch and wrote the dialogue in this film, which is really top-notch stuff. Yeah, it's great. I think I have, a, like, in my little notes, I have several different just quotations of dialogue that stuck out to me at the time even though i might not have the context in my head right at the moment right now there's a lot of really really witty dialogue really it's really well thought out the way that the script works it's mm -hmm. it's quite something yes um george kuchar was a fan of just kind of hollywood cinema of the late 50s and mm -hmm. kind of used that as a big uh as a big influence in his work. Yeah, I'd say it looks kind of like a William Castle kind of film. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. So you get kind of the the hallmarks of that like 50s drama to mm -hmm. the dialogue a bit. But it's obviously uh, taken in a different direction because all things considered, this is also strongly a comedy film as well. Mm -hmm. uh, everything that the characters do is odd along the way basically and uh it creates a pretty unique atmosphere yeah it's um it's a unique atmosphere it's unique new york <laughs> i gotta think of things to say for this episode but i think once we get into the movie i'll have a hefty dose a hefty dose uh-huh 
Uh, yeah, cool. every, yeah, it's cool. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of plot in this one. I would say because it's yeah. not like our typical like pornographic film we would review where they built the whole thing necessarily around getting to the sex. Right. It's just like all the sex stuff in this just kind of adds another layer of like weird grime to the proceedings. Right. Well, and, and I think that that's one thing that's worth pointing out to begin with is that this is a two and a half hour film. It's actually two hours and 39 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a 10 minute intermission okay, in the middle. I was going to say it was an intermission 10 or 15 minutes because I paused it and went to the store to get snacks. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, I timed it. It was pretty much exactly 10 minutes. That's good. You get to the, uh, redo a bunch of the music through it, which is yeah. nice. Um, there's that little cool, uh, like, Asian mummy sort of theme that they do sometimes. Do you know yeah. what I'm talking about? Uh, I think so. It just kind of has that little Eastern kind of... Yeah, the music in this film was done by Mark Ellinger, who also is co-credited for the story on this with Kurt McDowell. Okay. Um, there was, uh, in the special features on the Blu-ray, uh, he talked a little bit about uh, the process of recording the score where he was playing it alongside the movie as they were kind of editing the movie together and it was a it was a fun little experience but it was all uh it was all original score for the film so that's pretty cool yeah it was i enjoyed it uh but yeah it's two hours and 39 minutes uh i've seen some adult films in recent years that are that long or around that length but yeah the key to the the big difference between those and this is those movies had like 40 minute sex scenes in them yeah i think i read like something that like Caden cross had won like an award for like her most recent movie and it was something like four and a half hours and i'm like oh my god yeah well there's that's a genuine fuck film right there's there's kind of a feeling i guess when it comes to those uh the more recent sex films that like more is better basically mm-hmm. i feel like there's there's a feeling that well if we have a five-hour sex film that's more valuable to us than a two-hour sex film because it's longer and you get more for your money basically yeah but uh when it comes to actually watching a movie that's usually not the case no yeah I get, cause, uh, yeah when they're that long i figure you just kind of pop them on and jerk off and then maybe come back later when you get back to your hotel room kind of (laughs) stuff but not something you would kind of sit through like a maniac watching all of the lord of the rings films back to back right (laughs) um the cool thing about thundercrack is even though it's over two and a half hours long it it moves yeah it's the it keeps moving like they keep tossing new stuff in and just keep the plot going with the like you said the strong dialogue and the increasingly bizarre situations everyone finds themselves in right um the sex scenes in this film are a few minutes long each they're not overwhelming in fact you know the vast majority of the film is dialogue and character interactions and flashbacks and stuff like that uh the sex is definitely important to the film because it's all about like these people having kind of sexual awakenings together more or less yeah uh, but it's not the uh, it's not the focus on screen a lot of the film. So uh, Thundercrack is a delightful little film that we will be talking about today. Uh, anything you want to add in a general sense about Thundercrack? 
Um, yes, I loved it. All right. Uh, <laughs> that's my entire review. No, um, I guess in a general sense, like I was saying earlier, it does kind of adhere to a lot of those gothic uh, tropes and uh, literary uh, device. Well, not literary devices, but um, just like a you know a lot of deep shadows. You got your house that's locked up. Right. Uh, you have a woman that's descending into madness. So I'd say in a general gothic sense, it's probably closer to say Edgar Allan Poe or someone like that, where a lot of it's just a person's, like you said, sexual awakening or descent into madness type stuff, uh, where a lot of the terrible things that are happening are going on both inside and outside right. the psyche. Um, so I thought it was really good at conveying both of those elements. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. This is uh, this is quite a unique and special experience. Uh, I watched this a couple years ago, and then I came back and watched it again uh, this past week to get ready, and uh, I really love this movie. It's yeah. really good. Yeah, I could watch it again soon, I would yeah. think. Um, I'm sure there's something I've missed in like the two-and-a-half-hour runtime that uh, right. I would catch on the second time and make me love it even more. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I will say, uh, this film was uh, released on Blu-ray by Synapse, and uh, it's a great release. Um, the film itself had a very troubled history. It was shot and completed, and then when it was sold to a distributor, the distributor decided to uh, cut the film severely from its two-and-a-half-hour length mm-hmm. to uh, an hour-and-a-half basically but there were like five prints created or something Mm -hmm. like that and they were all of different lengths slightly around that hour and a half mark yeah uh but they weren't uh no two were the same apparently that sounds great let's collect and watch them all (laughs) uh and see which one forms a coherent plot line because you once you chop like an hour of material out of the movie right like say you just get rid of the sex that's maybe like 30 or 40 minutes of the movie like tops right um so then you have to like decide what else you're going to cut out and i can't imagine wanting to lose a second of what you had right and and i'd imagine that based on the market uh that this was being sold in they probably weren't going to try to cut all the sex out either right so um there are certain the story got the chop there are certain things that sexually probably did get cut out, and we'll kind of touch on those along the way, because yeah. there's definitely some oh, behavior that, uh, by the standards of the 70s, is quite deviant. It's kind of like, uh, especially towards the end, it becomes like a very John Waters-type film, where it just gets like increasingly like more transgressive and yeah. what you see on screen, which I like a lot. Yeah, that's, uh, that's one of the strengths of the film, for sure. So, yeah, the history of this film is not very kind. Uh, So, uh, Synapse did the Blu-ray release. Uh, They apparently found the only surviving 16mm print of this film and restored it for this. Uh, The only uncut version that still existed. Because all of the prints that they originally made got cut, except for this one. Right. Uh, I believe there might have been a second uncut print that got, like, seized and destroyed or something like that at one point. I would believe that. Uh, you know. Again, this is a very transgressive somewhere, film. Somewhere in Arkansas or, like, Texas, they just seized it and just right. threw it onto a pyre. 
But uh, it's uh, so you know the fact that it exists at all at this point is uh, a miracle, or maybe not a miracle, but uh, it's, it's something that yeah, it's a gift. It's a gift from the darkness. Yes, uh, it's it's a good thing that it survived because uh, it's a great film, and if this one print. Uh, had fallen to some sort of uh, bad situation in the past, you know, 45 years or whatever, yeah. uh, we might not have this film at all. We wouldn't be talking about it today. We'd be talking about Pirates. Yes, Pirates. Who directed Pirates? I don't know. Okay. Who's in Pirates? Um, I know that Ethan Stone's in it. Okay. Um. You know, a lot of those people that were making porn in, like, 2005 or six. Okay, well, let's not watch that one. Thank God for Thundercrack. Thank God for Synapse Films. Uh, yeah, so one thing that I would give as a, uh, a uh, recommendation to anybody watching this film is I would recommend turning on the subtitles. Uh, I typically don't if i'm you know watching something that's already in english but the soundtrack to this is kind of rough um so it's a good idea to put the uh subtitles on uh so you can understand the dialogue because there are some places where it's really muffled yeah and in addition i put the subtitles on everything because i can't like i can't hear half of what people are saying i don't understand it it gets processed in my brain wrong. So if you have that problem, put on the subtitles too. Uh, so Pirates, the 2005 film. Yes. It's Evan Stone, not Ethan Stone that oh, I was okay. trying to think of. Almost, yeah. This, uh, this is a time in porn that I'm not super familiar with. Like, I know some of the names. Yeah. Like, I knew Evan Stone as a name. I just got it wrong how from long, my recall. How long is Pirates? Uh, it's 129 minutes, so a little over two hours. Watch Thundercrack instead. Yeah, I would uh, recommend that. Uh, Jesse Jane, Tegan Presley, Tommy Gunn, Stephen St. Croix, Devin. Just Devin? Devin is one of the uh, actors in Pirates. Uh, it's directed by June, J-O-O-N-E. I don't know. Uh, he, this is the, he is the founder of digital playground who's the company that made pirates so oh, the ones that did the humpty dance uh yes okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh so yeah pirates uh we will probably not cover that soon but uh i do think there may be some somewhat recent films that we might cover in the near future all right i'm excited at episode 10, you know, we've gone through and we've been pretty consistent in covering the classics up to this point. Yeah, it's time to branch out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely some things from the, like, 90s video era I want to cover. Mm -hmm. There's some, there's a few more recent adult films I want to cover and, you know, I might have these same sort of complaints about them, but um, there's definitely some worth checking out. I just want to get weird with it. Yeah, get a little weird with it. Yeah, um... Uh, what I definitely we, want to do a Jess Franco film soon. Yeah. You'll have a Jess Franco night. Yeah. It's going to be live. Tune in and listen to us watch a Jess Franco film in silence. <laughs> I don't think I could do like a running commentary, like a mystery science theater style. I would quickly peter out like even now. Yeah. 
No, I I understand that. Also, uh, might have some guests on in the near future. Oh yeah, guests are important. We have friends. We do have some. We have some friends that will uh, perhaps deign to join us and talk about these filthy films. And, uh, if uh, you would like to be a guest, why don't you drop us a line at raincoatreport at gmail.com or hit us up on social media at Twitter or Instagram at Raincoat Report and say, I want to be a guest and we'll fly you out here. All expenses paid. Uh, yes. Uh, as the responsible member here, I'm going to say that we will probably not let you on unless you're somebody that we already know and we're definitely not paying for anybody to fly anywhere well fuck you all right all right so uh with that i'm taking a break we're gonna go ahead and take a break and then we'll be back to talk about thundercrack that was a woman's voice calling from behind that door who is it that speaks to me with the voice of a woman Sorry to bother you, but I need your help. Well, just a minute, Mrs. Cassidy. Mrs. Gert Hammond will be with you in a minute. Why couldn't she have telephoned before coming over? Because it's one of my observations. It's one of your kooky observations. Uh, I prefer to think of them as incisive, but you can call them kooky if you want. (laughs) I don't feel like the word kooky gets used enough. No, not anymore. The Adams family were kooky. Yeah, um, it's because we live in a more politically correct society where that kind of ableist language isn't is frowned upon. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, um, I think you forgot that. Yeah, I forget a lot of things. Yeah, no one's been outside in like six months, so the oh, yeah. norms of society have completely fallen apart. Yeah, I don't know how to interact with anybody but myself and my girlfriend. Yeah, not even you. Yeah, we're having some trouble (laughs) we're pulling it together for the show but it's real fraught backstage you know what would definitely help our relationship is if we got a uh, lot of uh patreon donations oh yeah that would definitely help us be bound together i'm going to start the boss and jeremy friendship patreon okay for ten dollars a month you can ensure that we're still friends that's actually pretty good a great idea yeah man that would be cool if we even just got 10 people that needed we'd be rich we would be we'd we be would making 1200 dollars a year yes we would <laughs> like we'd basically be jeff bezos oh uh, yeah we would be we'd have weird serpent eyes and a pointed <laughs> face and say things like i love you alive girl do you remember those texts that like went out? Like it was it was no. like, like last year. Like I don't think I knew anything I think about the National that. Enquirer stole like a bunch of like his texts and then like printed them to like his like new girlfriend and he would just say things like I need to smell you, I need to caress you, and he said I love you, alive girl, which is not something a human says. <laughs> so. His dialogue's worse than the dialogue in this film. The dialogue in this film is great. Yes, it is. So, uh, let's talk a little bit about Thundercrack. That's Ben Thunder. 
Oh yeah, that's the uh, that was like the, jazz thunder. Uh, so we're uh, we were talking about putting some post production sound effects in, but I think we've just opted for acapella sound effects. Give me a sheet of tin foil and a, a hammer. Uh, a sheet of tin. I'll just go. Oh yeah, it'll yeah. be like an old radio play, which would be fitting. Yeah. Oh, man, we should have really prepped more for this. It's not as much of a spectacular as it could have been. Yeah, I think that I set the bar really high at the beginning. Yeah, and and you won't even let us fly guests in. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to take back what I said. Uh, you are welcome to fly in as many guests as you want. Yeah, okay. Thank on you. your dime. All right. It's going to be the government dime. I'm going to have to go on welfare soon. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, you know... <laughs> Uh, to the listening audience, Jeremy just almost impaled his eye on a straw uh, as he ch- tried to swing over to get a drink of his margarita. It's a reusable straw. Save the turtles? Yeah, we're yeah. saving the turtles in this household. Excellent. So, uh, Thundercrack uh, opens with a crack of thunder, and we see some clouds and shots of trees blowing in a storm, yeah. and uh, we get our credits. Uh, we see a house as well that's like obviously illustrated. Yeah, it's an illustration, but whatever. It it's looks, really cool. It looks I like really it. good. Yeah, I love this whole title sequence. I would love to just steal it. So, uh, it's as a, immediately tone setting. Right. We get uh, we start getting some cuts to a car driving down a dark road and some more lightning and trees blowing around in the house. Uh, then we cut to the inside of a home and we look at a when we see a radio uh, and there's an announcer talking about the bad storm inside outside the announcer on the radio notes it's the most intense storm this winter season so far so as that's going on um you know the camera's on the radio but in the background we hear some coughing and laughing and we see a woman reach in to turn the radio off and telling it, or the announcer on it, to shut up. And You're just a weather channel puppet, something like that. Yeah, she calls them a puppet for the Weather Bureau. Yes. So, it's here that we're introduced to Mrs. Gert Hammond, played by Marion Eaton. Mm-hmm. Looking great, by the yeah. way. Uh, I love her makeup. It kind of reminds me of... Uh, Joan Crawford and whatever happened to Baby Jane or whoever, which one of them? They both look crazy in that, right? I think so. You don't know. I it haven't was, seen it. I've seen it. It was Joan Crawford and the other one, Betty Davis. They both look crazy. Right, right. Um, but she kind of looks like that and sort of like the Joker combined. Yeah. Like her eyebrows don't match. She has lipstick that goes well up like over the top of her lip. Right. Uh, but it's worth noting mm-hmm. that at this point in the film, she doesn't have all of that on because oh, okay. she puts it on a little bit later. That's right. Because she's home alone at this point, oh, not expecting yeah. any guests or anything. I forgot. Sorry. Uh, so she tells the announcer that he doesn't even know what an isobar is and explains that I got some schooling in me. I'm no dummy. We we can kind of tell at this point that she's clearly drunk. Mm-hmm. So she sits down at a table and opens a bottle. Explains, Charlie didn't want no dummy for a wife. She talks about her husband, Charlie Hammond. She talks about how she wanted to be his wife forever, and as she puts it, not just till they came. 
We'll find out more about that later. So she uh, stands up from the table. Um, the, there's a, a box of Ritz crackers on the table. Yeah, I noticed Clear that. display. Yeah. Uh, I hope that they... Uh, they got sponsorship. I hope Ritz. that they helped finance the film. <laughs> when I think of Ritz crackers, I think of like a spread at a porno set. <laughs> <laughs> so we cut from there to a guy who's driving a truck... Uh, this is Bing, played by George Kuchar. Mm-hmm. Bing says that he shouldn't be driving around mammals on a night like this and wishes that they gave him the amphibian cage instead of the mammals. Yeah. He yells, pipe down, Samson. He talks about how he's disgusted by the way that Samson's treated. So Samson is the lion. Yes. Um, that he's driving around. We find out here that he's driving for the circus. Yes, he's a circus man, a carny. Um, so he's got Samson the lion. As this is all going down, the camera's just like slowly zooming further into his face, like really slow. It's a nice little effect, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a, kind of a long cut. He says, no, Medusa, I wasn't talking about you. Uh, what he His comment before then was being about how he was disgusted by the people at the circus, not just the yeah. people who worked there, but all the, the children the children and, and the everything else. And the, so he responds... The disgusting teenagers. So he responds, No, Medusa, I wasn't talking about you. Medusa being the gorilla. And he says, Gorillas are different from little children. They have more hair. <laughs> so we cut from him, Bing, to a man on the side of the road getting rained on. Uh, this is Bond. No. No, this is uh, Toity. Toity. You're this right. Is... This is Toity. Played by... No, I didn't need the cast from Pirates anymore. Are you uh, sure? <laughs> Toity being played by Rick Johnson. He it... sees the circus truck pass him, and he notes that whatever they're carrying sounds hungry. He says, I don't have to worry about hunger of the stomach, just the other hunger. The one more ravishing that I worry about. So he talks about something he heard in church about how birds don't have to worry about food and God provides. But he says, I can't live on worms. So a car pulls up with two women. Yeah. Uh, the driver here named Rue, played by Maura Benson. Yeah. Uh, she asks how high he wants to get. He asks if they're junkies, and she says the only junk she has is on her wrists. She asks him about these crates that he has, and those come into play later. Those are important crates. Don't forget about them like I did. He says there's something he picked up in Tucson, and she tells him to get his crates and get into the car. So Rue, the driver, tells the other woman in the car, Sash, played by Melinda McDowell, Mm -hmm. To get her lily white ass out and help him with his crates and just give him a hand. So Sash gets out with Toity. Uh, she tells him, I was ordered to give you a hand and nothing more. Uh, she says that she was given those orders by the general, referring to Rue, the driver. He asks why she would get her, as she said, lily white ass out of the car for her, her being Rue. Sash says it used to be redder back when they lived in Tucson, referring to her ass. Yes. And this sets up a mystery that must be solved later. It's a real red herring. 
She says, you should have seen it then. And uh, Toity says, well, I haven't even seen the white one yet. And she says, oh, you will. <laughs> so Rue tells Sash to take off her skirt before she gets back into the car because it's soaked. So she takes her skirt off and we see her buns there. Yes. They're good. They're nice. Uh, Rue asks the hitchhiker's name and we learn it's Toity McNeil, again played by Rick Johnson. So Rue asks if he's from Brooklyn. She talks about how she went to school in Brooklyn and the people there were fatsos letting their fat hang out all the time. I personally felt offended by this. <laughs> <laughs> we are both fat Americans. Yes. And we I'm glad this kind of discrimination isn't allowed anymore. Yeah, this of all the things in all of the films so far, this was the most offensive to you? Yes. Okay. <laughs> personally. Like Yes. Yes. So Toity says he's believed in letting it all hang out since he was 17. So Rue says that what he has is probably worth letting hang out in the light of day or under a six watt overhead lamp. And Rue turns on the dome light in the car and asks him, care to surface your breathing snorkel? Rue then asks Toity what Sash was talking about outside the car. Toity says it was something about Tucson, and Rue asks if it was about how her butt used to be red. Toity confirms this, yes. and Rue says it wasn't red from laying out in the sun, which is obviously what I thought initially. So Sash starts telling Rue to stop it and yeah. not tell the story. Yeah. Um. So Rue asks Toity if he wants to know why. Toity says, sure, and Sash keeps protesting. Rue says, he wants to know, honey. And Rue says that she'll tell him once he lets it all hang out. Rue says, fair's fair. She let him see Sash's lily white butt. So she adjusts her mirror so she can see Toity, and he pulls his dong out of his jeans. Yes. And Rue is quite impressed. Yeah, she sure is. So Sash keeps protesting, uh, telling Rue not to tell Toity. But Rue says, well, she needs to now. So Sash freaks out, grabs the wheel of the car, and then they crash. And there's an explosion yeah. off screen. Yeah, rather than expose her secret, um, she would rather kill them. Right. Kill them all. Which <laughs> <laughs> um, is pretty funny. Yes. Yeah, it's good. Uh I wrote, you shouldn't try to expose your friend's butt and your same secrets on the same day. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a good uh, good idea. It's just a good motto to live by. Yeah. Yeah. So then we cut to an, an interior of another car where we have two guys riding together. Uh, Chandler Wilson, played mm -hmm. by Philip Heffernan. Mm -hmm. And Bond, played by Ken Scudder. Yes. Um, you'll note, dear viewer, listener that all of these men have mustaches and that's and they're all white so good luck telling them apart if you don't put the subtitles on yeah and they've got like uh they're all like medium length hair that's yeah sort of darkish at least look like guys that lived in california in the 70s right yeah uh, i had some trouble keeping them straight i think that i have them all straight in the notes at this point yeah. but uh there was at least one or two times where i wasn't really sure once they take their clothes off it's even harder to distinguish them to be yeah. honest 
because you can't even like be like, oh, that's the guy with the striped shirt. Yeah, I was like, oh, this guy's all white. That's Chandler. Uh, and there's at least one costume change in the middle of the film, which also complicates things. Yes. Viewer, beware. You're in for a scare. <laughs> so, um, Bond, Ken Scudder's character. Ken Scudder was in, was he the other guy in Pretty Peaches? No. He was in an act of confession. And I think he, was he was in an act of confession. I believe so. I think he was just one of the brothers or the priests or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he stuck around a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so at he's least. been, yeah, he's been on the show before. Okay. I, I knew the name before, but he was a part that I just couldn't remember who he was. He has a name that just makes me think of like a cartoon character. Right. Well, it's definitely a name that you remember. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're getting a shot of the dashboard, and we hear them talking. Bond noticed the an explosion, and Chandler uh, did not. So we learn that Chandler picked up Bond on the side of the road, and Bond says he's mighty grateful. Chandler Wilson is the heir to the Wilson fortune, oh, yeah. but he's also the widower of Sarah Lou Phillips from the House of the Phillips, Phillips Unlimited. Unlimited. Uh, which is a repeated line. It's a, it's kind of a running joke, but it's not really funny yeah. at the same time. I think it's more of a recurring eccentricity. Yeah, it's just, it's funny. It makes the dialogue better. So. I lied, it was funny. Yeah, uh, House of Phillips Unlimited uh, is a group that owns a big girdle factory in yeah. Waco, Texas. Yes. So, as... Wilson, as uh, Chandler Wilson and Bond talk to each other, we definitely get a quick sense that there's some homosexual tension here. Yes, um, definitely, especially when he just grabs his dick. Right. It breaks the tension a little bit. Yeah, um, so, yeah, Bond, like, Chandler talks about uh, Bond's torso... Yeah. And then Bond, like, tries to pull his shirt up, and Chandler gets upset about it. And Bond notes that he got upset earlier, too, when he tried to show him his dodo tattoo. Yeah, he doesn't want to see a tattoo of a dodo. Yeah, Chandler says something about it being an extinct animal and all that. Yeah, it's the only way he's going to get to see it. Right. So Chandler explains that his wife was killed in a fire. And... He ends up telling Bond that he finds him very attractive, and that makes him want to throw Bond out of the car. Uh, he talks about how it had been a year since he had a worthwhile sexual encounter. Um, they talk a little bit, but it comes out that that was not with his deceased wife. He said that sex was not worthwhile, just perversion. So Chandler ends up stopping the car, uh, and he takes a puff off of Bond's cigarette. Bond asks Chandler if he wants his White Owl cigar. Oh. And Chandler starts feeling on Bond's crotch, Mm -hmm. and he reaches for the zipper when there's a knock at the window. So Chandler's startled, and then he asks, what's the problem, officer? But it's not a police officer, as he thinks it was originally. No. Instead, it's Willeen Cassidy, played by Maggie Pyle. She explains she's not a cop, she's a housewife. Uh, she says she's the wife of the country rock singer Simon Cassidy. So she then immediately offers them signed photos from an envelope that she has carrying around. 
Chandler's obviously irritated by this because he was about to feel on a dick and he's upset that that was interrupted here. She says that she just stopped to talk to her fellow travelers about the explosions she saw up the road. And Bond says, I told you I saw something blow up. Chandler says that maybe it was a bolt of lightning. Uh, Chandler's on the way to Waco to the Big Girdle factory and he doesn't want to look back. Uh, why is he on the way to the Girdle factory? We'll find out more soon. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Chandler is on the way to the Girdle factory and doesn't want to look back, but Bond and Willene are concerned that somebody might be hurt. So, right. Willene says that the way that Chandler's talking, he's like some sort of beatnik. And he asks what she has against beatniks. She says they're bongo drums, for one thing. <laughs> Uh, Bond tells Chandler that he had already put his cigarette in his mouth. What about his White Owl cigar? So, at this point, he's basically implicitly offering his dick to Chandler if they go check on the crash. <laughs> so, Willene says she'll go up to the farmhouse up the road to see if they have a phone in case somebody's injured. Did Willene have a car? Um, I think we're left to believe that. It's never explained. It's she never just kind shown. of spells, who's who is Willene really? She's uh, you know, a housewife, the wife of Simon Cassidy, the, the country rock c- singer. Country rock singer. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I think that's enough. Okay. She uh we get some depth to her character. She yeah. goes through some changes. But how did she get there? Uh I don't know. Let's find out. Okay. So, yeah, she's going to go up to the farmhouse uh, to see if they have a phone. Chandler and Bond will go check on the crash and head back to the farmhouse afterwards. So we then cut back to Gert on the kitchen floor with a bottle of wine. So now we've gone through the cycle and been introduced to all of the primary characters. Now we have to just do the thing where we bring them all together. Yep. So um, Gert's on the floor. Uh, She's on the floor of her kitchen with a bottle of wine. There's a knock at the door, and she says, Is that you, Mr. Maple Tree? Is the wind banging your branches against my door? She has this very haunting dialogue with herself through the scene. It's it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, she's clearly, you know drunk as shit yeah and trying to but she's like got this very big betty davis type personality to her she definitely yeah i think that that comparison to like whatever happened to baby jane and stuff like Mm -hmm. while i already admitted that i haven't actually seen that that's like definitely the type of probably an inspiration yeah in one way or another right Uh, um i love a good hag yeah yeah the old exploitation. Yeah, that's my favorite genre, cycle. After some more knocking, she hears a woman's voice at the door. She uses the great line, Who is that that speaks to me in the voice, voice of, of a, a woman? woman? What a fine line. It's yes. excellent. <laughs> so See, uh, I think that's why Willene, she's not a real human. Right. <laughs> because of this. We'll, we'll explore that theory. I'm, I'm, inter- I'm interested in this. Uh, feel free to interject at any time. I will. So, Willene introduces herself and says that she's sorry to bother, but she needs help. She So, Gert tells her, just a minute. So, 
She gets up and she has to brace herself against the wall as she's kind of hobbling around. She goes into the bathroom and starts prettying herself up. She makes a comment that she wishes that she had phoned ahead and given her just a half hour. Yeah. <laughs> so she talks to herself in the mirror. Um, you can tell at this point that she hasn't had company in a good long while. Yeah. She's just been drunk off her ass talking to herself in her house. Out on the prairie. Out on the prairie. So she, she talks to herself in the mirror and she notes that she's seen double. She feels too drunk to hold audience with Miss Cassidy, Mrs. Cassidy. So she starts putting her makeup on and she draws her eyebrows on crazy here, yeah. uh, okay. which they remain for the rest of the film. Yeah. <laughs> and then she decides she's going to make herself throw up in the toilet. Which is really gross. So she gets down on her knees and shoves her fingers in her throat and throws up into the toilet. And as she's doing it, her wig falls into the toilet. Yes. She then fishes it out and just puts it on. Uh, she walks out into the living room and steadies herself on the couch. And then she goes to answer the door. So, Gert Hammond was played by Marion Eaton. Uh-huh. Uh, she had been an actress for a really long time doing a lot of stage work and maybe mm-hmm. some, some other small movies. Right. Um, this, as, this was her first uh, film where she uh, had any sort of uh, sex on film. Uh, so this was a really was an eye opener for Miss Eaton. Yeah, um, there was one of the special features on the Blu-ray was an interview, like from 1976 on mm-hmm. San Francisco TV, where uh, Kurt McDowell, the director, and Marion Eaton were both uh, interviewed by a local reporter. Yeah, trying uh, to do some publicity for their horror sex film. Right. Um, but they, uh, she talked about it there and she, you know, she seemed to have a really good, uh, impression of it. And she really liked this character. She talked about like how she's a compelling character. They all kind of are cause everyone gets like just enough like evolution and like backstory to kind of make them fleshed out a bit. Right. Well, she, um, I don't remember if it was in this interview. She also does an introduction to the film as one of the special features mm-hmm. as well. Uh, and this is her, you know, in the 2000s, so she's much older by then. Yes. But she's still really happy to talk about it and stuff. She's, um, But in one of those, she talked about specifically that line about, is that you, Mr. Maple Tree? Is the wind making you knock against my door and mm-hmm. all that? She talked about how great that was. And uh, one of the upcoming lines as she's entertaining Mrs. Cassidy, she talked about how, uh, how much that kind of humanized her character and, like, She's very complex. Yes. We'll, we'll say that and we'll get back to it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Marion Eaton, you know, she's uh, older than most of the cast members here, but perhaps not as old as she uh, appears in the film. Right, yeah. They really kind of go over the top, like I said, with her makeup. She looks like kind of like the Joker a little bit at right. certain times. So she answers the door and Mrs. Cassidy at the door asks if she's been sick. Yeah, so she's uh, vomiting her wig because it <laughs> fell on the toilet. Uh, she doesn't really answer this question. She introduces herself as Mrs. Gert Hammond, as she does to everybody. She goes on this long explanation of the house there in uh, Prairie Blossom, yeah. is what it's called. And she talks about Charlie Hammond having built it, and uh, he's now buried in the wine cellar. More and, on that later. Yeah. 
Um, she gets to a certain point in this like paragraph long explanation about the house where and she gets to a certain point and can't remember the rest of it so she reaches in this cabinet behind her and pulls out a piece of paper to finish the whole spiel <laughs> um reads off the rest of it around this point gert collapses and willine takes her into the bathroom and asks how long it's been since gert's had a washcloth she ends up pouring a bath and undresses gert and gets her into the bath so she can tell that Gert's a r- real mess, and uh, uh, Willene Cassidy is a very naive and innocent woman uh, in so a lot she of ways. Have you believe? Well, yeah. At least at this point in the film, that's her portrayal. Uh, I think that at this point in the film, that probably is the case for the most part. Yeah, there's not much else to her at the moment. But uh, she definitely has some character development. But anyhow, so she basically pours this bath and puts Gerd into it and, you know, Gerd undresses and everything. So she basically starts uh, washing Gerd, mm-hmm. um, you know, trying to uh, do a good deed for somebody who's obviously, uh, you know, drunk and a mess. So uh, Willene mentions she's married to Simon Cassidy and Gert doesn't know who he is. Willene's talking to her about her husband and she says that she and her husband are as true to each other now as they were three years ago when they were married in Kentucky. Um, so as she's talking about it, we see like these really interesting flashbacks that happen yeah. throughout the film. Uh, it starts with like an illustration of a bride and a groom and then some flowers. And then we finally get to see some like characters and, we get a flash of what Simon looks like very briefly. But as uh, Willene continues washing Gert, she talks about how Simon's gotten some offers in Hollywood and she starts talking about one particular offer he got and all this, uh, all the troubles around it and all of that. But as this is going on, Gert starts grabbing Willene's hand as Willene's kind of washing her. She slowly guides her down to start rubbing her vagina with her hand basically so gert is taking willene's hand and started rubbing her vagina with it um gert's moaning but willene's just keeping telling these stories about her husband and seems completely naive to what's happening yeah um side note she's supposed to call the police uh, well, I, her thing was she wasn't supposed to call the police necessarily. She was going to go to the farmhouse to make sure that they had a working phone. And then the other two were going to come back if there was a crash or anything. And at that point, they were going to call uh, the police or whoever. Okay. Sounds like an excuse. Yes. <laughs> She's irresponsible is what I say. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. So, as Willene's talking, Gert gets off. And as she finishes moaning, she says thank you repeatedly to Willene. Uh, that was one of those other things that uh, Marion Eaton had said was uh, a, an interesting character moment for Gert as a character. She was kind of, you know, stuck here with no human contact. And, um, you know, even though what she did was gross yeah yeah (laughs) um you know and took advantage of somebody else uh 
She was still appreciative of the human contact. That's good. Waleen asks where Gert's telephone is, and she says it's in the other room. So she goes into the other room and checks it, but the phone's dead. So Gert walks into that other room uh, in a short kimono or a long button-up shirt. I think somebody said it was a kimono later on, though. I think, yeah, I think I remember someone saying kimono as well. So we'll go with that. Okay, so there's another knock at the door, and Gert gets excited. Waleen says it's probably the people she met up the road. So uh, Waleen answers the door, and Chandler and Bond come in carrying two women. Um, and also Toity walks in uh, with his crates. Mm-hmm. Uh, they explained that there was a bad crash, and uh, they're lucky that they crawled away from the wreck before the gas tank exploded. Yeah. So, uh, Waleen asked why one of the girls has been disrobed, that being Sash, who had taken her dress off earlier. Sash explains that her dress was wet, and that witch over there, as she says, didn't want her to stain the upholstery. Waleen suggests that they should get down on their knees and thank God Almighty. Rue says there's only one thing she gets down on her knees for, and men thank God Almighty that she's doing it. <laughs> Rue has the best dialogue in the whole film. For sure. She's got the... She's the sassiest. Yeah, she talks like a, like a Russ Meyer character, like one of the girls from, like, Faster Pussycat, where it's yeah, all yeah. just, like, one-liners. Yeah, yeah. They point out that Toity zipper's open, and Rue and Sash keep arguing with each other, so... Gert's talking about the house and explains that the name of it's Prairie Blossom. Um, the group's arguing all around, and Chandler gets upset at one point uh, where Sash mentions Chandler's wife, and mm. Chandler starts, like, throttling her. Yeah. Um, and then he explains mm. how his wife died. Yeah, he yells, uh, quit talking like the ghost of my dead wife, <laughs> which is an insane thing to say. Oh, okay. But we'll yeah, see that's... he's driven by uh, a singular purpose. Yes. He explains that his wife died at a garden party because she took off her girdle as a sign of feminism and started burning it. But the girdle was flammable and she didn't knew and it blew up in her face. And so the flaming material of the girdle fell on her and stuck to her skin, burning. So the guests threw their drinks at her, but they were alcohol, so it just made it worse. <laughs> she eventually fell into the swimming pool, leaving a pillar of steam coming out of the swimming pool. Uh, and we see Chandler struggling to tell this story. Yeah, it's another uh, one of those cool flashbacks where... Oh, yeah, where yeah, you get little bits of... It's kind of like impressionistic, sort of just like imagery that just, yeah... Yeah, I think impressionistic's a good ex uh, explanation. It does feel like something out of like a Fritz Lang movie yeah. or something. Yeah, where yeah, just like kind of like a still image that you just kind of project the rest of it right through, through your brain hole. You got a brain hole? Yeah, down in my brain hole. <laughs> Chandler, I think it's so. I think I have these characters straight. Mm -hmm. So Chandler tells Bond that earlier he had wanted to know about his love life back when they were in the car. He had asked something about it. Bond says, now isn't the time. So Chandler says, maybe you'd like it better if I if it was behind a bus station. And Bond gets mad and uh, him and Chandler start scuffling. Yeah, Chandler's just picking all kinds of fights. So he ends up knocking Chandler down. Bond says... You know, explains that he was upset because Chandler tried to cheapen him by saying he'd sell his body for money. 
He says his body is a gift from God given for no monetary award. And like, uh, this is the second time, but he, he says like monetary or yeah. something like that. And somebody corrects him that it's monetary. Uh, there was something back in the car. Yeah. Where another that line of dialogue. Uh, um, but it'll... that's a recurring thing in the film is uh, bond misspeaks and gets corrected. Yeah. And, but he says, that's what I said. Monetary reward. Yeah, he's a he's a goofball. So uh, Gert invites them to change out of their wet clothes, and she says that she has old clothes from her youth and also some from her dead husband. So she tells them to use a specific bedroom to change in for privacy. Before they start changing, um, they mention that the river water was so high they might not have been able to make or. They mentioned that the river water was so high that they had trouble making it over the bridge there. Mm-hmm. And they might not have any choice but to stay the night anyway. So Gert says that she's going to prepare goodies in the kitchen yeah. and reminds them exactly where they need to go to get dressed. So Chandler and Bond fuss at each other a little yeah. bit more. She has a, a she has another good line. Uh, good old. Good old Gert. Uh, when she's sending them off, she's like, the night is always long on the prairie. And that kind of, I think, is just like a good, like, act one sort of inbreak to, like, oh, where yeah, you go yeah. to the next thing and everything just goes crazy. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Um, so this is where the depravity of the film really begins. Right. We cut to Gert opening her refrigerator and getting this vegetable out of it, which we don't, I, I couldn't tell what it was at first, but it's, it's later explained that it's, it's a... a it's a peeled cucumber. Yes, it's yeah. a peeled cucumber that she kept in the refrigerator. Uh, we'll learn more about peeled cucumbers here in a bit. Yeah, we're going to have peeled cucumber sandwiches, the recipe coming up. Stand by. <laughs> After grabbing the cucumber, she walks into this room with this, like, corkboard wall. Mm-hmm. And then we see that there's two holes drilled in the wall. Yeah, and, and she has herself a little psycho room where she watches people. Yeah, so... She, there are two holes in this wall that she's looking through into this other room that she told everybody to get dressed in. Uh, the two eye holes line up with this picture of George Washington on the <laughs> wall in that room. We then get some shots of that room, and we see that there's a bunch of erotic artwork, uh, both drawing and photos, all over the wall, but also like some random pictures of like presidents and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, I think the erotic stuff is especially, some of it's worth mentioning, um... There's, like, a print of, like, a woman having sex with a dog. There's, like, another one of a guy fisting two other men. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, and it all leads to a very creepy-looking blow-up doll in the bed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's also some dildos and magazines throughout the room. Yeah, it's a filth hole. So a den of perversions. So then we see that Gert is moaning and looking through these George Washington eye holes. And we see that she's also fucking herself with this peeled cucumber. Delightful. Uh, Then we see that Chandler's in the room naked. And he's getting dressed, but he hangs his uh, clothes in front of the eye holes, I believe. Or at least, like, gets out of the viewpoint of the eye holes. Yeah, he kind of steps off to the side, I guess, where she can't angle herself. Yeah. So she's frustrated because she can't really see him. Um, so he finds this machine in the room that has this cylinder on the end of it's it. It's like a, is it supposed to be a penis pump? 
it's something like that, but I, I feel like it's, it's like a you know, sucking machine. Yeah, it's like a suck off machine, basically. Yeah. So he uh, lubes up and puts his dong in the cylinder and turns the machine on. It, it's like one of those uh, vacuums that has the big external cylinder that yeah. you drag across the floor and then the hose that comes out <laughs> of it. One of those old style vacuums. Yeah. It's like that, but it's got like a dick sucker on the end. Yeah. Uh, and it's just as loud as one. <laughs> so we watch his dong pulsate and cut to the various, uh, and we cut from there to various uh, zoomed in shots of the erotic images around the room. Yeah. Um, eventually he finishes and pulls out of the machine. Uh, then Rue starts banging on the door and she's ready for her turn. Uh, Chandler finishes getting dressed and lets her in, telling her that somebody decorated the room for her. So she looks around and sees, you know, the, yeah. what this room is. So we yeah. get, we basically get this sequence where we go through all of the uh, night travelers as they experience this room. Right. Rue then undresses uh, while Gert is watching. We see uh, Gert continue to fuck herself with the uh, peeled cucumber. Yeah. Rue opens a drawer and finds a pretty big dildo. It's a... Uh, vibrator as well yes um you can't really just play with random sex toys you find in a room i was thinking about that yeah i wrote a note i was like who just goes in and just starts using the stranger's sex toys yeah that seems like a bad idea yeah this room has special properties that of great horniness uh it's on a ley line yeah of a magnificent erotic power yes <laughs> There's a sexual energy haunting this house. Yeah, we're going to weird the the horn busters and we're going to get that horny ghost. <laughs> so Rue turns on the vibrator and starts masturbating on the bed. There's a uh, piano music playing. Uh, we talked earlier about Mark Ellinger who did the music. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, most of the film is piano music of different yeah. types. So she's going at it and then sash knocks on the door she says she hears what's going on in there and she shouldn't be shaving her legs she's freezing in her wet clothes yeah so rue stops and finishes dressing as sash walks in uh rue has her zip up her dress and then rue leaves so sash scans the walls as there's kind of this music box music playing yeah um, she goes over and rubs the mouth of the blow-up doll and then starts to finger it before just throwing it on the floor. Uh, she finishes undressing, and then she finds this hand puppet. Oh, yeah. And lays on the bed playing with the hand puppet. It's an erotic puppet show. So uh, then Bond walks in mm -hmm. and starts undressing. Uh, he's wearing this jock strap, and Gert is... Uh, Turn around. Turn around. <laughs> and then she sees it and she says, that's a big one. <laughs> um, so he so he pulls out his dong and he's wearing this condom that has like this mask on the end of I it. I think it's called, a, I think that's a French tickler. Is I that believe what that's it is? what that is. And I guess people back then just liked having molded plastic jammed into their orifices because it doesn't look like something I would want inside me. Yeah, uh, I mean, if it was like really soft latex or silicone or something, yeah, maybe. it doesn't look that way. It looks like hard plastic, yeah, for sure. Uh, 
like a dong extender thing, that's fine. Like, you yeah. know, just like a little, but I don't know about this. This looked like it had sharp edges on yeah, it. Yeah, someone's getting cut. So he ends up getting on top of Sash and she slaps him at first, but then she just embraces him and they start making out. Yeah. So he gets up above her chest and she pulls the condom off with the weird French tickler on the end and starts blowing him. Good then idea. He, Good job, Sash. Yeah, she she knows what to do. Yeah. So he uh, fucks her tits for a second, and then he starts going down on her. Gert is very excited by all of this. Uh, Sash is on top of Bond, and he's fingering her a bit, and then she starts riding his dong. Then we see Bond finishing himself off, and uh, Sash seems dejected. Um, so she finishes getting dressed and Toity walks in. Kind of comes on to Sash a yeah, little he, bit. He's uh, rebuffed. Yeah, he makes a move on her and she is uninterested. Yeah. Uh, Kurt, on the other hand, is still stuffing herself. Yes. She's having a good time. So Sash leaves and Toity finds the blow-up doll on the floor and drags it onto the bed. Says, look at this dude. <laughs> so he finds some lube... Um, because there's a bunch of lube just laying around in bowls, like in these like uh, metallic tubes. Yeah, the, like it looks like the stuff that like super glue. Yeah. Like comes in now. Yeah, uh, but I guess that's how they kept lube back in the day. Yeah, they hadn't perfected plastic technologies. Yep. So he finds some lube and lubes up his dong and starts to fuck the uh, blow up doll in the butthole, uh, and then he grabs a dildo. And lubes it up and starts fucking himself in the ass with yeah, it. Yeah, it's a double ass fuck. Uh, he is having a lot of trouble getting it in. He yeah. says, get in there, goddammit. Yeah, he's mad. Uh, and he eventually repositions himself and gets it going. The blow-up doll really needed to be blown up at this point. It was like uh, not... Uh, he had punctured it. Yeah, he had punctured <laughs> it, I guess. I don't know what it, happened. It definitely wasn't at full capacity, and no. I feel like he would have had a better time getting a good position if it was full and yeah. like could be moved easily. Do you know if there was like a slide whistle, like whenever it would kind of like fall out of him, and you have to like put it back in? <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's that's how you do a soundtrack, fellas. Yeah. yeah, he did that right along. They're like editing. He's like, oh yeah, I got I got my slide whistle and my synthesizer, or whatever, my ancient <laughs> Casio. But yeah, he keeps having trouble with the dildo flying out of his butt. Um, but Gert's having a great time watching this. And as she's uh, still ramming that cucumber in her, in herself, uh, the George Washington painting falls off the wall and Toity realizes that there's those holes in the wall now yeah. that the George Washington isn't covering it. He says, so what's your game, you batty bozo? <laughs> You should be ashamed of yourself telling everybody you're in the kitchen making goodies. Woleen then knocks on the door to the dressing room and asks Toity if he's done. Uh, he tells her she could come in and she opens the door and he's still fucking the blow-up doll with the dildo in his ass. Yes. Uh, Woleen, the pure, naive Woleen, mm -hmm. is very upset by this. Uh, so she yells at him. So he gets off of the blow-up doll and pulls the dildo out of his ass. He opens the door and throws it at her down yeah. the hallway. <laughs> she had made some comment about him having no decency, and he says, If it's decency you want, don't come in this room. We cut to Gert in the kitchen. She's done watching the uh, room at this point. 
She hears Waline coming and throws the cucumber that she had been masturbating with into the pile of fruit that's sitting uh, yeah, on her counter. Right. Waline says she's afraid Gert opened her door to scum. Waline says something about the med- bedroom, and Gert explains that it was her son's bedroom. Waline asks where her son is. Gert says he no longer exists. Waline asks if he's dead, and Gert says no, he no longer Wonder exists. exists. Waline asks if she can get something to eat, and Gert tells her to help herself, so she immediately grabs the cucumber and remarks about how strange it is that it's peeled, and then she starts eating it. Gert explains that she peels it because it ages the flavor. Waline says, it certainly does. It sure does taste odd. Gert says she'd like it if Waline got used to the flavor, as it would help their relationship. (laughs) Unfortunately, Willine does not, and she asks if she can throw it away. And Gert says sure, and uh, tells her that there's a trash under the sink. So she goes to throw it away under the sink and notices that there's a whole pile of them in there. Yes. Gert says those cucumbers did not age well enough to suit her, as she puts it, hungry lips. Uh, Willine offers to take out the trash if Gert goes and picks up the thing in the hallway. Um, referring to the dildo that had been thrown. Mm -hmm. Gert explains, the coin of sexuality always has two faces. That's what my son always said. Yeah. Gert explains that her son started ordering that stuff in the room when he was age 16 through the mail. She explains he was rather grown up. He was forbidden to open the packages, though, before finishing his breakfast. Uh, She always made sure that he had prune juice with his breakfast uh, because he wanted his system cleaned out. Yes. (laughs) Willine explains, well, with stuff like that, I'm sure he did something to that effect. Yeah. Uh, Gert explains, you know, once again mentions that her husband's dead, but her son is no more. He no longer exists. Do you think that Gert was watching her son through the little George Washington peepholes? You know, up until you mentioned that, I hadn't thought about that. But like, but I feel like that has to be why that peephole was there. Yeah, because if she hasn't had company in a long time, unless she just did it like out of boredom, I don't know. I think so. Yeah, that would be a good explanation as to why it would be there, because it's not like she drilled the holes during the right. run of this film. Yeah. Uh, ew. What a what an odd family. She's not a good parent. No. No. Uh, so, Gerd asks Willine if she'll help make dinner. Um, we cut to Rue in the living room area, saying she needs a drink, and Gert uh, yells from the other room that they can help themselves to the wine in the cellar. So, the guys talk about going down to the basement, but Toity and Chandler, I believe it is, get into a fight after some taunting about sexuality between them. Yeah. Which is always weird because all these guys are bisexual in this movie. They're all just still bullying each other, though. That's the straight, white, hetero patriarchy for you. Yep. Yep. That's that's how it works. That's how it works. Uh, yeah, there's a whole... Chandler has just got a short fuse, I think, as a character. Yeah. Yeah, which is fun. So, Sash and Chandler end up going down to the cellar together. Um, Sash starts making moves on Chandler talking about how well he handled himself uh, back there in the living room. In the living room, when Chandler and Toity started fighting, uh, they knocked over a, a, lamp. a lamp 
and Chandler offered to pay for it, and Sash appreciated that and referred to that as him being thoughtful and tender. Um, so Sash is trying to seduce Chandler, but he's not really interested. Chandler's busy trying to pick out a wine, but behind him, Sash is getting undressed, and Chandler's not really noticing what happens until mm-hmm. he turns around and sees that she's changed into a leather jacket and some jeans. Uh, apparently, these are Bond's clothes that he had changed out of. Yes. Um, but Sash is pretending to be a guy, basically. And she's got this big dildo that she says she took out of the bedroom earlier, sticking out of the jeans. Fortunately for her, Chandler seems into this. Uh, so we cut back upstairs. Yes. And Simon Cassidy, Willene Cassidy's country rock star husband, is mm-hmm. on the radio. So Bond and Rue are dancing and flirting while uh, Willene's kind of on the floor with the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, Toity talks with Willene a little bit. Uh, and then we cut back down to the cellar where Chandler's on top of Sash and fucking her missionary. They're kind of flirting with each other, playing up this, like, bus depot prostitution angle. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> very erotic stuff, talking about picking up people at the bus stop. <laughs> Have you ever been to a bus stop? Like a like a bus depot? I don't... I actually don't think I have now that I think about it. It's pretty grimy. I think we went to the one and was picking up a friend and the one down in like uh, downtown Louisville. And it was, uh-huh. it wasn't super filthy, but there was just a general air of grime to be like, I don't think this is where I would want to have sex. I feel like, like in my head, at least I imagined it being like a rest stop, but just with a lot more people. There's also vending machines. Rest stops have vending machines a lot of times. And a terminal. They don't have a terminal at the rest stop. No, they just have like a a place where you can pick up little brochures about tourist attractions nearby. Oh, yeah. Like and come, like little maps. Yeah, come visit our Civil War battlefield. Come visit our bicycle parade. Yeah. I saw one for a bicycle parade once. It was, That's weird. It was cute, I think, in a way. I, know, I think you had to supply your own bicycle. Well, that's a nightmare. Yeah. So eventually, uh, after all this dirty talk and stuff, uh, Chandler pulls out and comes on uh, Sash's stomach and chest, and they make out a bit. So uh, we cut back to Gert in the kitchen, and Toity walks into the kitchen. She bends down to look into the oven, and Toity starts complimenting her body. Uh, Her uh, kimono kind of rises up, and you can see her butt as she's bending over. And he's giving her some dirty talk, talking about turning her into a shish kebab. Oh, yeah. Uh, He's got the rod. Yeah. She's like, what about the meat? Yeah. What about the potatoes? Very. She takes it very literally. Yeah. Uh, And she, he makes some comment about her having lumpy sacks of potatoes and grabs her breast. 10 pound sacks of lumpy potatoes. Yeah. (laughs) I can't remember where she gets to that, but she mentions giving her son enemas. Yeah, uh, with like garden hose like attached to the sink. Oh yeah, because yeah. she not with the red bags. Yeah, <laughs> I don't remember exactly how they got on that topic, but uh, it's a boner killer. Yeah, <laughs> talking about giving your son enemas in the kitchen sink. Yeah. Um. So he asked for some of that grease over there. Yeah. 
and he lubes up his dong with it and he asks what it is and she says it's bacon grease and he says that when he's done when she farts it's going to sound like a pig oink oink (laughs) Uh, she says something about him having no respect for her but she's still into this until he starts pressuring her about what's behind the locked door yeah i don't know did you mention that earlier because she just kind of briefly like fingers like the locked door uh like when everyone's kind of getting there oh yeah 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 but that's another deepening mystery right the locked door the locked door mystery and uh whatever's whatever's going on with the locked door you know all this talk about him uh ramming bacon grease up her ass or whatever really didn't do anything to kill the mood but talking about the locked door sure did (laughs) just immediately destroyed this conversation so she tries to distract him from that, but he says he won't continue without the keys to the door. So they start arguing, and he's distracted. He's still talking to her, but he's turned away from her, and she grabs this cleaver and starts to swing it down towards his penis, but he dodges away just in time to not get uh, his dong chopped. I hope that was a stunt dick. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very dangerous, uh, very dangerous shot. Uh, so we cut to Rue and Bond. Uh, they're off somewhere else, and Rue is blowing Bond. Uh, and he ends up coming in her mouth and on her face, and he, she sucks his dong a bit more. And then she tries to ram a dildo in Bond's ass, but he protests. Mm-hmm. He explains he gives, but he doesn't take. So they hear the clanging around in the kitchen from that scuffle, and they remember that... Uh, Gert's cooking, so Rue says, well, I've already had my protein, I just need my starch. (laughs) So they go to the kitchen and end up, uh, Rue and Bond end up breaking up Toity and Gert as they're trying to, as she's still trying to chop Toity's dong off. Right. Um, As they're scuffling, they hear an elephant trumpeting and see its shadow in the doorway and they freak out at that point. Yeah. I was like, finally, the animals are here. So, <laughs> so in the cellar, Sash and Chandler are down there kind of cuddling together. Sash seems a bit sad and talks about things being distorted. Chandler says he's going to Waco to try to stop them from making those dangerous girdles. Sash pulls out Chandler's dong as he's going on about the girdles and starts blowing him again. Or I guess for the first time, she wasn't blowing him before. He explains the reason he deviates towards men is because so many women are wearing those girdles. And uh, when they undress, he sees them and he panics and he can't get hard, basically. Right, because he's worried they're going to catch a flame. Right. So Chandler says that destroying the house of Phillips Unlimited would resolve his issue, he thinks. So he's talking about throwing a Coca-Cola bottle of gas at it. Uh, She mentions that uh, in Waco, they're a Dr. Pepper town. (laughs) So he might have to throw a Dr. Pepper bottle. Um, But he was also going to leave behind a competitor's girdle uh, to taunt them. (laughs) So Sash wants to go with him to the factory, and she says she loves him. And then... uh, she sees this 
jar light up as there's i believe there's thunder and it lights up she sees this jar that has like eyes and uh indistinguishable other stuff yeah it it. looks like maybe some genitals and like a brain perhaps so she screams when she sees it i think the eyes are just drawn onto the jar um there's something in the jar there's something in the jar but i feel like the eyes were drawn on like over the top of that i don't know that might be the case they didn't look real or like orbish at all no but uh you know they were not intact and we'll find out why yeah uh we'll find out why really soon in fact so uh back upstairs everyone's nailing boards over the windows and chandler and sash come in uh from downstairs and uh, the people upstairs explain the scary elephant outside uh rue says she sees a lion heading toward the chicken coop and then she also sees a gorilla Mm -hmm. so we have uh samson the lion medusa the gorilla and i don't remember the elephant's name elephant i'll have it later in the notes here when being shows up uh dr bongo (laughs) it's a good name for an elephant uh we'll go with dr bongo for now even though i'm certain that that's not the name probably not uh so sash and chandler bring up what they saw downstairs and gert explains that she pickles things to preserve them and that's her husband they say it looks like something had gnawed away at him and gert explains well that's the way he looked when he died friday the 13th there is now an explanation and some flashbacks that explain the end of charles hammond Um, On Friday the 13th, a buzzing cloud came down from the Rockies. Charlie was working in the grain bin uh, in wheat, and the sun disappeared behind a buzzing shadow, and he was swarmed by locusts chomping away. Uh, Because he had been covered in wheat powder, they were just eating away at him. Yes. Um, She couldn't do anything about it, and her son was in Borneo at the time, which we'll find out more about later. And so she talks about watching him get eaten by locusts, basically, and how she recovered his remains, but there wasn't much left. Yeah, she had passed out for like a day and a night, and when she woke up, the bones were bleaching in the sun. Yes, exactly. So as she wraps up this story, Rue spots a man outside, and then it's intermission time. So we get 10 minutes of piano. Can, can we take a quick break? Yes, we'll take a quick break, our own intermission, and we'll yes. be back with the rest of Thundercrack. Oh, the fridge dropped ice right then. That was scary. Ah. <laughs> Do you want to talk about Thundercrack? Of course. Oh, we're back from intermission. Uh, yes, we're back from intermission. Uh, Are we going to leave the intermission in? We should have just kept it recording while we took a break. Yeah. I'll just put the 10 minutes of intermission music laid 
over top of just nothing happening in the room. Yeah. Well, there'd be some snatches of conversation. Yeah. A bunch of stuff not said into the microphones. <laughs> well, that's why it's an intermission. We're taking a break. We don't have to be near the microphones. So, we don't have uh, to worry about levels. So, yeah, we had 10 minutes of intermission. There's just a card that says intermission and a bunch of music getting played. It starts with just piano music, and then it gets more percussive and avant-garde sounding. Yeah, you think they put this in here so people could get out, stretch their legs, wash their hands, change their pants. That yeah, kind of stuff. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's a two-hour and 40-minute film. I mean, without the intermission, like two-hour and 30, but... But, yeah, you know... There's been some fine fuckery, so... Yeah. Know. I mean, it's like uh, Gone with the Wind. It has a intermission in the middle of it, and it's a terrible movie, so... I've never wanted to see it, so I've never even been in the same room when it's been on. Um, it's... So, my opinion might be different if I watched it again, but the one time that I watched it, just the entire movie, I hated Scarlet with a passion, and then... You know, at the end, there's the line, frankly, I don't give a damn or whatever. Yeah. And then you're like, yeah, fuck her. <laughs> and that's basically the movie to me. But I think that, like, it's supposed to be really romantic and stuff. But yeah. I I just, like, Scarlet's just being a bitch the whole time. It sucks. I'm glad people are at least a little nicer in the world of Thundercrack. Yeah, they are. Um, there, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of conflict and stuff, but yeah, overall, everybody kind of fucks, so it's okay. Conflict and psychological turmoil and fucking. When we return from intermission, they've let in Bing, played by George Kuchar, the mm-hmm. writer, uh, who was at the beginning of the film the guy driving the circus animals. So they've let him in, and he explains that his truck rolled and the animals are loose. They ask him about the bridge uh, because they were talking about how high the river was and how they barely made it over. Uh, Bing explains that the bridge is fine and it's still there and travelable. So Sash says that, you know, she wants to try to leave with uh, Chandler. But the other people in the room mention, you know, not with all those quadrupeds out there. Bing explains the quadrupeds aren't the dangerous ones. It's that gargantuan biped, the gorilla. They explain that uh, Samson, the lion, had its teeth and claws pulled out, which, uh, you know, Bing has a problem with, of course. He feels that all of the animals have been humiliated. Uh, Minnie the elephant, that's the elephant's name. Okay, Minnie. I wanted to say Dr. Bongo, and I also wanted to say Delilah, (laughs) but Minnie sounds right. Yeah, Minnie the elephant is blind. But Medusa's the gorilla, and one look can freeze a man on sight. Yeah, she got me hard once. Yeah. She wants bananas and sex. But she doesn't like gorillas. They're too hairy. She just likes young men. Bing explains that one night she got him hard, and he kind of tries to go past that, and they press on that. Yeah, it's not something you can just drop. It's not a thing a human would say. And uh, he kind of stonewalls them for the moment. Rue and Sash are bickering with one another again, and Rue threatens to reveal Sash's secret, but now Sash has fucked Chandler, and she's not rattled by this anymore. Yes, his dick put her right, and she's not worried about her past because she has a bright future ahead of her. Exactly. So, for the first time in her life, she's in love with the man, she says, and 
Uh, Rue says, well, better than a cactus. So Rue explains why Sash had a red button uh, Tucson. She had nothing to do, so she would sit around and pick the thorns off of the cacti, and then she would gyrate on them for hours. She asks, but uh, you couldn't get all the thorns, could you? But Sash explains that wasn't the problem. The reason that her butt was red was not because of thorns, but because of chlorophyll poisoning Yes, uh, that her doctors explained. I don't know if that's medically sound. I don't know. but uh, So they asked, well, why was your butt red then, but not your private parts? Rue explains that she saved her privates for the stuffed Gila monster on her father's <laughs> mantle. Gross. But Chandler's not bothered by any of this. So they mentioned that Willene isn't around, and they haven't seen her since she was listening to the radio. Um, so they start probing Bing more about his background in the animals. Bing kind of starts to break down a bit, saying that he made Medusa dirty. Ugh. What do you think he means by that? Uh, we'll have to find out soon. Okay. So we cut to Bond. He's gone into the porn bedroom with Willene. She explains that her husband is trying to help her get rid of the curse in her body by not copulating with her until Sister Geneva flushes out the vileness with an elephant syringe. Yeah. That's an officially sanctioned Catholic program. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like an exorcism enema. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So there's an elephant syringe that's being stuck into her organ, as they say. Uh, Sister Geneva said they'd have to wait while she performs this ritual before they could consummate their marriage. She explains that this ritual takes three years, but she also calls the people in the house devils (laughs) along the way. Um, Yes. Bond gets on top of her on the bed and starts to make out with her. She says that he's an animal. Or no, he says that he's an animal, not a devil. She asks him what kind, and he says, a rhinoceros. Can't you tell by my horn? Oh, yeah. He pulls out his dick. Yeah. (laughs) And then he starts fucking her. So we cut back to the table, and Bing is telling all the other people about how he hated the people at the circus. He explains that his co-workers got him stinking drunk on his 31st birthday, and they told him that they got him a hooker. So he went into this tent with her, and he noticed that she was a bit black and puffy, uh, and she had something jangling around her wrists. It wasn't until later that he figured out what was going on. Oh, no. It was Medusa the gorilla. They had shaved her and chained her down. So we get this flashback sequence with, uh, you know, various flashes of what's going on. But one of the things that we get to see is uh, the morning after the gorilla grabbing his dong and jerking him off and making him come. Yeah, it's probably the only gorilla hand job on film. <laughs> so he realized in the morning that it was Medusa when she smiled her yellow teeth at him and he screamed. So uh, real quick. Earlier you said um, you said McDowell was playing the gorilla? Uh, yes. Do you think he was playing the gorilla hand in this scene? You know, I hadn't thought about that. I didn't. It occurred to me after you told me that that was him. Uh, I don't know. 
Perhaps. Perhaps. I mean, it, it seemed pretty sexually open yeah. uh, as far as the film. So, I mean. Could be. Could be. Could be. I don't know. I mean, Kurt McDowell He's in his alive. interview. uh you have Twitter? Kurt McDowell in his uh, interview that's in the special features, you know, mentioned that he was bisexual. Yeah. Uh, he died in 1987 of AIDS. Uh, damn. Um, uh, in the uh, It Came From Kuchar documentary, you get to see some of the footage from one of Kuchar's uh, films that he made around uh, 86, 87. Mm-hmm. You get some footage of Kurt McDowell uh, in the last weeks of his life. and oh, That sounds tragic. He looks, I mean, he looks like he's dying. He, he looks like he's only, you know, 12 years older than uh, he was when he made this movie. Right. But he looks like 50 years older than he was Damn. when he made the movie. You could tell it's kind of worn him down. But uh, that was definitely something that, you know, really uh, emotionally hurt for George Kuchar, because even though yeah. they weren't constantly making movies together, they had, you know, a close relationship and they were friends. Right. So it was tough. But uh, he might have also jerked him off. I hope so. <laughs> so uh, being ended up being put under psych observation for a week. Uh, but after he returned to work, Medusa kept making eyes at him. But. She was getting nowhere, so she tried to make a move for her trainer, Senor Tostada. <laughs> but Senor Tostada would hit her with a whip, so she ended up tearing him limb from limb. Then Mr. Harlan, the circus owner, wouldn't put Medusa down because Mrs. Harlan had nursed Medusa from her own breasts uh, as a baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Mrs. Harlan gave Medusa her mink coat after she was shaved. So, Mrs. Harlan ended up taking over as Medusa's trainer after Senor Tostada was torn limb from limb. Right. But the problem was, Mrs. Harlan was in her 50s, but every night she was going out in a bikini. Yeah, like a leopard spot bikini. uh, But the crowd would boo her, so Mrs. Harlan would get upset, but she would end up taking out her frustration on Medusa uh, with the whip. One night... Medusa grabbed Mrs. Harlan's whip and pulled her towards her and then pulled her bikini away. And then she ended up, like, sending her body flying across the circus into the ring with the dancing hippos. (laughs) They were doing the Mexican hat dance. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Mrs. Harlan is played by, I believe, a man named Billy Paradise. Yes. Like, um... So at this point, like we're like full on into like some weird John Waters stuff, where you've got like this drag performer performing with a gorilla when there's a whip. Um, yeah. it's delightful. It's yes. delirious. So after this situation happened, her act uh, Medusa was still kept with the circus, but they changed her act to where they had her feet chained down, and Medusa and her woman trainer would both hula hoop together. So, as Bing's giving this uh, explanation, Gert keeps trying to change the topic back to dinner and kind of trying to keep the situation light. Toidy keeps looking at the locked door. Gert tells him curiosity killed the cat. So, Rue mentions Bond and Willene being gone. Uh, she says, there's nothing like a good pounding to get your chops tenderized. <laughs> so, we cut back to the bedroom and Rue and Bond are finished doing it. Or, not Rue and Bond. Uh... Bond and Willene yes. have finished doing it. But they start back up. 
And Bond is titty-fucking her. And then he starts to fuck her again. Uh, she's talking about annulling her marriage since it hadn't been consummated. He doesn't think there's proof. <laughs> so uh, Toity is watching from the doorway. And then Rue shows up. So Toity has pulled his dick out and is starting to stroke it. Uh, Rue's trying to get involved with Toity, but he's not interested. Yeah. So then uh, Rue shows Toity that she has the keys that he wants to the locked room. And so finally Toity agrees basically to just come in Rue's mouth for the keys. Yeah. Which a, seems like not a bad deal. Yeah, that's pretty good exchange. Uh, he was going to have to fuck that old lady otherwise, and she wasn't going to give him up. Yeah. So it's all really working out for uh, these two. They kind of become like the antagonists at a certain point. Right. But I'm not really sure where, like, up until, like, they're the final moments of the film. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, they... Like, everyone's pretty sleazy and seedy, so they don't feel, like, maybe too much worse than everyone else, except that they're just, like, insulting people the whole time, which... Yeah, I guess so. Maybe that's a problem in the swingers' paradise. Yeah. Yeah. Over here in Prairie Blossom. Yeah. Toity watches Willine and Bond fuck and then, you know, finishes jerking off and comes on Rue's tongue. And then Rue gives him the keys. So, again, pretty good exchange. Yeah, good deal. So, Bond and Willine have finished and they're talking in bed. Uh, they go to leave the room, but they run into Toity outside the door. So, Toity explains that. The crates that he brought with him were full of bananas. Yeah. Remember those crates from two hours ago? Yeah. <laughs> so, but that's a key because the two things that Medusa likes are bananas and sex. So, if they want to get past Medusa, the dangerous animal, uh, bananas would be very helpful. So, Toity offers Bond the bananas so that him and Willine can get away. But, in exchange... Toity wants to fuck Bond. Yes. Bond earlier explained that he gives, but he doesn't take. But now, he's thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So, we cut back to the table, and they're pressuring Bing, and he finally admits that he crashed the truck on purpose because he didn't want the animals to suffer anymore, and it was also kind of attempted suicide on his part. He didn't do a great job. They all survived, <laughs> and so did he. He talks about how they were on the road to a school full of disabled kids, and he goes on this long tangent. I wish I'd gotten some of the lines, but he talks about, like, have you ever seen a kid in a wheelchair uh, punch a ostrich in the face or something like oh, that? Yeah. It's like, yeah, something like that. He gives, You're... like, three examples of, like, disabled kids abusing the animals. <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. Yeah, it's... <laughs> I've huh. forgotten about it until you brought it back up. But yeah, I'm really remembering that scene now. So, Bing admits <laughs> at this point that he has the hots for Medusa because no woman has ever satisfied him like Medusa did. So we cut back to Bond and Toity. So Bond asks Toity to take it easy. Toity gets on top of Bond and talks to him a bit. And Chandler's watching from the doorway in delight. Uh, Toity starts blowing Bond, and then Bond starts stroking hard, and he comes. And then Toity sucks him off a bit more. Yeah. 
And then Toity lubes up and then starts fucking Bond kind of flat on the bed. Yeah, and that's our first gay sex scene. Yeah. Yeah. Ten, ten episode spectacular sodomy edition. Yes. Uh, we've had various acts of sodomy, but not man-on-man butt sex yet. Yeah, uh, I'm so excited. I thought this movie was just going to keep teasing it out until the end and never deliver. And it's not super hardcore because a lot of the sex in it really isn't. Right. But uh, it's enough. Yeah, it's great. It's it satisfied uh, my homo urges. Great. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, next week, Boys in the Sand. We'll watch all the guys... I tell you, June Pound next year, other. we're just going to have, we're going to do Pride Month next year. It's going to be a month of gay porn. I, I'm down. All right. We'll do it. Okay. So keep listening if you want to hear that. So Chandler walks into the room while Toy's fucking Bond, and he sits down in a chair, and I think he's smoking a pipe at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he says he's going to tell him about his love life with his wife, uh, because again, Bond had been asking, uh, Chandler about this earlier. He tells this long scenario story and I don't remember all of the details here, but basically it all ends up with a, with his wife. He's like in a crate or something. Okay. Yeah. He's in a crate. And he has to squish himself up tiny in the crate. And then his wife would come in with a parakeet and then perch it on his pecker and then get under his pecker. And then the parakeet would poop in her mouth, basically? Yes. It was Um, perverse. So, yeah, I guess his earlier comment about the sex with his wife being perverse makes a lot more sense. Yeah, um... That's what feminism will do to you, ladies. So, stay in the kitchen. Yeah, wear your girdles, and wear your combustible girdles, and stay in the kitchen. Otherwise, a parakeet's going to shit in your mouth. Right, and that's going to be the only way that's, you get off. That's the future you, you liberals want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I'm not going to kink shame, but. Eating parakeet shit is a little bit much. That's just bestiality. That's true. By, you're getting an by animal. By other means. You're, you're getting an animal involved in your sex act. That's not cool. A bird shit on you once, though, right? Uh, yeah, it wasn't on purpose. No. And it was on my shoulder and not my mouth. That's good. But it was was a, it was a pretty big bird. I think, was it? I don't I don't know how big the bird was. We were just in a bird sanctuary. Oh, yeah. And then I felt a slight thing and then i looked in and there was poop on my shoulder so what a good story yeah i mean it wasn't good enough for me to tell on my own but since you uh forced it out of me yeah i'm just like rue and you're like sash (laughs) right the as this story climaxes so does toity (laughs) uh he finishes as uh chandler's talking about the bird shitting in his wife's mouth so that's very good (laughs) So as they're they're finished but naked, Willine walks in, and she sees Bond and Toity naked and asks what's going on. Bond explains that he was getting their passport out of here, and Willine says, well, if that's the passport, he's going to have to go alone. Toity then explains to her that Bond was bargaining uh, in the crate. He tells Bond that the crate is behind the, so- the uh, sofa. So... As everything's explained to Aline, she's suddenly proud of Bond for doing that. Yeah. (laughs) 
So she's so supportive. She of really any, is of anything any of her men do. Right. <laughs> so then we cut to a bedroom, not the bedroom they'd been at before, but another bedroom. And Bing is getting dressed in Gert's wedding dress. Uh, we find out now that Bing is going to get married to Medusa. Um, Bond walks in and says there's something scraping at the back door, and they think it's Medusa. So it's explained to Bond that uh, Bing is going to marry Medusa. That should give them the opportunity to escape, escape because he thinks that that's going to tame Medusa more or less. Um, Bond is upset because he now realizes that the bananas may not be necessary at all anyway. Uh, and so he got butt fucked for no reason, more mm-hmm. or less. But, but you know, it was an experience. Yeah, don't worry about it, Bond. Yeah, it's okay. Bing explains that they're in no danger if Medusa sees him first. Uh, he thinks if he gives himself to Medusa again, there will be a psychological change in her. Oh yeah, that's just, yeah, <laughs> that was a good quote. Um, <laughs> after I give myself to her, I expect great psychological changes in that primate's brain. (laughs) (laughs) So Toity and Rue are trying to open the locked door now. They've snuck away from everybody else with those keys. Uh, Toity finds the key. So then we cut back to the dressing room. Uh, There's a scream. Then everybody rushes to where the locked door is. Uh, Gert slams the door shut. With uh, Rue and Toity still inside. Yeah. You get a very, very brief glimpse of what's inside. Yeah, you get a very brief glimpse of what's inside. Uh, They ask, who's that? And she says, he who does not exist. Um, What did you see when he got out? Uh, You just see a silhouette of a man with giant swinging balls. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) More or less. Yeah. You don't really get a good look, just a, kind of a flash of it, but it's enough to be like, oh! Yeah, exactly. It's beautifully done. As Gert's holding the door, and they're dealing with that, Medusa then busts in the window and comes in. So Gert's just kind of droning on as they're trying, as being in Medusa or kind of dancing around the room. Not like dancing, but just kind of circling, I think maybe a table or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So Gert says, I told a lie. He does exist behind the door, just not out here in reality. Medusa is uh, stalking Bing through the house and down the hallway as Gert's cackling with laughter. Uh, This is kind of a, not dramatic, but like a a high-tension sequence, I guess, because we've got these two things going on at the same time. (laughs) And Gert's just yelling and cackling and just being crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Back in the dressing bedroom, the one where he was getting dressed in the wedding dress. Right. kind of has blankish walls. Mm -hmm. Bing lays down on the bed, and uh, Medusa climbs on the bed with him. Uh, (laughs) Bing talks about how how parasites have sucked Medusa dry, but he wants to give her a child. The first in a race of supermen. Yes. God, what a line. (laughs) I love Bing. So Gert is still cackling and holding the door shut. She explains that Gerald, her son, had gone to Borneo for erotic artifacts, uh, but he suffered a tropical disorder that affected his manhood, 
making him repulsive to man, woman, and himself. <laughs> his mind became unbalanced. She had to lock him behind the door. The weight of the malignancy could have crushed their bodies. Uh, she explains, the two of you will survive, and I pity you. Oh, no. Uh, we cut to Bond and Willeen in a car or truck driving away. Uh, the storm is over. Uh, we also see Chandler and Sash driving away together. Chandler explains, we're heading out of the mud and into a bed of roses. So they're going to head to a motel before they continue down to uh, the House of Phillips Unlimited Girdle Factory. Yes. Uh, and commit an act of terrorism. It kind of seemed like he had changed his mind about that. Yeah, at the they last moment, it was yeah, unclear, but yeah. I really hope they go and commit arson. Yeah, it was kind of uh, not his, transparent his what cool, was going on. Yeah, his he quest was, for vengeance had been satisfied. Yeah, maybe. they they mentioned that they were going not in the direction of Waco anymore, mm-hmm. but I wasn't sure if that was just because they were going to a motel to fuck or whatever, right. or if that his destination had changed. It's up to interpretation. That's uh, all great films are. Exactly. So we cut back to uh, Gert sitting at her table talking to the jar with Charlie in it uh, that uh, had frightened them in the basement. She's excited. She explains, we have company now. She says, I mustn't forget my cucumbers. People come and go, but the cucumbers must stay. (laughs) So she talks about how... uh, uh, being a Medusa are in the house, but so are uh, Rue and Toity, who yeah, uh, they're in with Gerald. They're in with Gerald, uh, probably Ger- not having fun playing Gerald's games. <laughs> Damn, I almost made that exact joke. Uh, good job. Uh, yeah. Did you hear all the screaming from the basement just now? Okay, that was what that was. Yeah, she's watching. Uh, I think get him to the Greek. Oh, okay. There's a lot of screaming in that film, apparently. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of screaming in this film. Yes. She invites Charlie to join her for a toast. So she pours herself a drink, but she also pours a drink into the jar that Gerald's floating in. No. Or uh, that Charlie's floating in. Yes. Then, you know, she gives some more witty lines, but this is where the film ends. Sadly. So, uh, that was quite an emotional ride. Yeah, um, I love it. So... We'll go ahead and take one more uh, break, and then we'll be back to talk uh, our final thoughts on Thundercrack. We're going to talk Thundercrap about Thundercrack. Oh, <laughs> Thundercrack. All right, goddammit, all right. It was an accident. I ran that truck off the road on purpose. But why? Because I couldn't see those animals suffer anymore, and... And me along with them. Suicide? Yes. We're on our way to St. Barnaby School for Crippled Children. In Nebraska City? That's right. Have you ever been there when the circus was in town? Did you ever see the kids poking at the animals with their crutches? Have you ever seen an ostrich run down by a wheelchair? Did you ever hear what it sounds like? To hear a tiger's head crushed by the blows of an arm and a broken arm and a cast? Lord have mercy. So we finished the movie, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. The end. The end. Credits. <laughs> Bring up the credits. Um, um, yeah. Did you hit record yet? Uh, yes. Oh, okay. You didn't have your headphones in. 
That's how I get you. Shit. The hot mic. Hot mic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love hot mic. We're going to make a movie called Hot Mic that's oh, yeah. uh, like Magic Mike, but it's a ripoff. And it's <laughs> whatever guys that we can get to take their clothes off. I think we could get, I think Hot Mike should be a political thriller. Okay. About a little journalist who like bugs the people's rooms after he's banging them. It's a little bit like, I think, the end of public affairs. Okay. Where like he like, does he like hit like a switch or something and he's just talking about getting his cock sucked? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just kind of stuff like that. Yeah. And, he, and there are people like, oh, how's this keep happening? And like, it's that <laughs> hot mic. <laughs> Old hot mic. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, we're back on the Raincoat Report here to talk uh, and give our uh, overall thoughts about Thundercrack. So let me let me turn things over to our resident film critic, Jeremy, to talk about Thundercrack. I'm checking my voicemails. Okay. I'm not really. I was just trying to pull something up that I had highlighted earlier. Okay. Uh, we'll we'll wait. Okay. America's waiting on bated breath. America's waiting for a bait and tackle sale to end all bait and tackle sales down at the Fresh Fish Feed Emporium this weekend. Uh, I think I just had a stroke. I hope at the Fresh Fish Feed Emporium uh, they sponsor podcasts because they should sponsor ours now. After all that free publicity you gave them. Yeah, I don't think they're real. Yeah, I don't either, but if they do, they just got free publicity. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Cut it out. It's not live. I don't know if, like, it counts as publicity if, like, part of the message is we don't know if the place exists. Yeah, but if someone makes it, they could use it retroactively. Oh, shit. Yeah. Um, no, uh, but I love Thundercrack. Great. Uh, it's a great movie. It's got some great guys and some great dolls in it. Yeah. As they say on Broadway. Uh, as I harped on before, it's uh, like even just as like a gothic like film on its own, I think it kind of stands on its own two legs while still being like a homage to older stuff. Right. Uh, but like it has enough like unique twists and turns like Medusa the gorilla or uh, Gerald the... I don't know. He the giant ele- testicle yeah, deviant he, the elephant, child. Yeah, man. the elephant Tysa, elephant Titus child. This preceded uh, Elephant Man by a few years, though. So McDowell was ahead of Lynch in yeah. deformed weirdos. <laughs> um, so I think it's just you know it's uh, it's very good. It reminds me a lot of one of my favorite uh, old horror movies, uh, James Whale's Old Dark House, which has a. Uh, a bunch of British people and Boris Karloff, who's also British, but right. But think, he, he's notable. Yeah. He's notable. The other people are like small, like actors, but it's got a lot of the same kind of beats where like the people like meet up and like form like relationships with each other, like while in the house and right. Does Boris kinda, Karloff get a hand job from a gorilla? Uh, he's more kind of like a gorilla. He's like a very stiff moving, like mute servant. Oh, okay. Um, and he gets drunk and just kind of slams his doors and into people. He was probably trying to get a hand job at one point from one of the women, but it wasn't too explicit because it was 1933. Right. Yeah, yeah. It just had that general just, you know, atmosphere of mystery, even if while everything going on was more on a Scooby-Doo level than like on a 
genuine thriller level. Right, right. Um, in the end, like the final reveal of uh, Gerald is really nice because it's right. so brief. Um, and I was reading some old essays last night trying to kind of prepare for this to find stuff I could say. So I'm going to pull up a prepared remark from someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and this is criticism of the film Vampire by uh, Dreyer, okay. a very famous German vampire film. Right, right. Um, uh, but I'm going to apply it to Thundercrack and the McDowell and Kuchar Alliance. Okay. Um, it was a principle that Val Luton applied uh, to his films. You know Val Luton? Yes. Okay. Uh, RKO producer made like seven great horror films in the 40s just to catch everyone up to speed uh that you must suggest horror you cannot show it or at least if you do it must only be momentarily for you cannot sustain it is the audience own imagination skillfully probed that provides out of its well of unconscious fear all the horror necessary which i would say fits this film in a lot of ways yeah uh everything's very psychological uh what scary stuff there is is very momentarily shown right right for good effect um like even medusa when she shows up doesn't linger around too too long yeah yeah um so you know i think uh it's the greatest film ever made (laughs) (laughs) Um, Uh, it's certainly the kind of film i would like to be able to make right this is um, this is definitely a movie that I feel like I, I, I've said this in the past, but it was something that I thought that you should see in mm-hmm. order to prepare yourself for uh, the uh, film Upcoming, project yeah, that we up, have uh, on the back burner. Yeah, it's been stalled out by a global pandemic. Right. <laughs> so now you get to listen to us talk about old porn instead. Right. Lucky you. <laughs> If it wasn't for that, we'd be making a movie right now. Yeah, that you would probably actually watch. Perhaps. I hope so. Um, But let's just use this. We'll use that as a springboard for the film. Right. Um, Once we get an established listener base, we'll start begging for Patreon donations. Yeah. I feel like we have to get more than like eight people listening for free before we can start to ask people for money. Yeah. Maybe we can ask our parents for money. Uh, hey, Mom. <laughs> hey, Mom, I want to make a monster fuck film. Yeah. <laughs> um, I need $12,000. <laughs> yeah, that's my whole pitch. I'm sure that'll go over well. Yeah. I'm sure it will. She's pretty, she's pretty on board with my weird life. That's great. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, what she knows about. <laughs> I don't know if the stuff she knows about would be bad or good is your mom a <laughs> is your mom a listener of the raincoat report uh no not as far as i know i don't know that she would be able to operate any of the apps to bring it up right um if it was on facebook she might be able to uh is your mom listening uh probably not i'm trying to not necessarily broadcast that i'm you're, doing this you're like a real porn star you're ashamed Yes, I have a lot of shame. Okay. Well, I have a lot of uh, interest in self-preservation because while I'm totally okay with this, I'm worried that uh, other people are not so much. Yeah. And, you know, on one level, fuck them. But on another level, I 
don't want like this to get in the way of me like getting hired for a job or something weird. Oh, I'm going to put it on my resume. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, we'll work on putting some pressure on our parents to finance a, a horror fuck film. Yes. And it'll be great. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Thundercrack. Thundercrack. That was my review of it that we jettisoned a while ago. <laughs> um, great movie. Definitely check it out. Five out of five uh, stars. Do we ever determine a symbol? We for, didn't do any work. No, and we uh, we had on a previous episode mentioned that maybe on episode ten we'd go back and give star ratings to all the films. You want to? You got a list? Uh, I can make it happen. Okay, we'll wanna... make it happen. Well, let's let's finish up with Thundercrack real quick, okay. and we'll go on to that. All right, that's a special bonus feature for the tenth episode, spectacular being held at the Fish Feed Emporium down on Highway One Fifteen <laughs> this weekend. Come out and get your face painted. Come out, uh, see a clown. Come out, look at the clouds. Come oh. out, eat a hot dog <laughs> off the ground. <laughs> I like the idea that there's a guy at the grill who's grilling hot dogs, but when he's done with a hot dog, <laughs> he, he just, just pushes throws them. it. Yeah, he just scoops them and just tosses just throws them into it the into the lot. field. <laughs> yeah, the field, the parking lot, wherever, wherever it lands, and then people, and then a bunch of kids just run to chase after it. It's a fun game for your kids. Bring your kids. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Thundercrack. <laughs> Uh, Thundercrack, yes. Uh, I love this film. It is one of my favorite adult films. Uh, like I had mentioned, I'd seen it a few years ago, and mm-hmm. I remembered liking it a lot. But since then, I've watched a lot of other adult movies. Uh, this was kind of early on in my uh, exploration of classic adult cinema. Mm-hmm. And I kind of thought that going back to it, that it would be not as good as I remembered it being. Uh, and I also was like, oh, it's two hours and 40 minutes. That's so long. That's such a, I mean, I could sit there and watch like three normal length movies right. by then. But uh, this movie, it doesn't feel two hours and 40 minutes long. No. It's it feels like a normal amount of length, although it is that long. Yeah. But like I said earlier, like it just keeps moving. It doesn't really have like, there's no point where like the plot like starts to sag or slow anything down um it is it's got so many different things going on at the same time um and it's so many different types of movies at the same time Mm -hmm. you've got your horror elements but they're they're kind of only uh it's more of a general aesthetic that recalls gothic horror yeah although there are definitely a few moments of horror along the way right um you know as your your uh reference to the uh vampire review yes thank you <laughs> <laughs> but like the, it does it it does have those definite horror moments in it but it's also got a lot of moments of those incredibly talky dramas of the 50s yeah where everybody's got snappy witty dialogue the mm. stuff that kind of i think like started in the noir era but yeah. kind of continued on from there and lots of different old dark house has like some of that i mean it's like written for the 30s and like an upper right. kind of class British audience, but it's still like, you know, back and forth repartee. Uh, but like, of course, it's it's written by a very eccentric individual. Mm-hmm. And because of that, everything is just super weird along the way. So it has kind of like the conventions of those very 
Hollywood standard run-of-the-mill films, but the actual subject matter is so completely bonkers right. that the whole thing just has a completely unique taste unto itself. Yeah, it's kind of like what maybe would have come out of Hollywood if like the Hayes Code hadn't existed in the right. 50s, you know? It's just exactly. like a weird like alternate look back in time. Because once again, to reiterate, the black and white looks great. Yeah. Uh, very shadow, very shadowy, very gray, very white. Right. All those those three colors, those three tones. Right. And I mean this is this is a very low budget production. Right. Um, you know, they're they're relying on people who had worked before with uh Kurt McDowell. Kurt McDowell? Malcolm. Malcolm no, not Malcolm. <laughs> uh the people who had worked before with the director, the director being uh Kurt McDowell. <laughs> Um, and also people who had worked with George Kuchar before, um, you know, a lot of people who did a lot of stage work, maybe some independent films. And there are a few people who did, uh, pornography like our, our good friend Ken Scudder. Yeah. But it's a very interesting cast. It really is an amalgamation of a lot of different ideas at the same time. It, It is something that really can't be compared to a lot of other films because it really takes just a bunch of different things and assimilates it together in a completely different package. Uh, Ken Scudder was Terry in Pretty Peaches. Oh, okay. Sorry. I thought he had been in... Um, I don't know. They all start to... All the mustaches blend together real <laughs> right. quick. Yeah, again, like uh, keeping the male characters straight in this was a bit of a struggle because they're all just mustache, medium-length-haired... Uh, 70s porno guys. Kurt McDowell in that interview on the special features of this disc uh, talked about how casting for this film was difficult because not only did they have to find people who could act, they had to find people who could act and also be uh, an explicit sex film, but they also had to find people who could act, be in an explicit sex film, and perform in bisexual you know, interactions with one another. Right. And there weren't a ton of people who uh, kind of fit in that. The tall order. It really was a tall order, but uh, it ultimately played out pretty darn well. Yeah. You know, if you talk about somebody like uh, Maura Benson, who played Rue, she only has six credits to her name. And I'm not even sure that there were some adult films, but this was the first one, it looks like. So... You know, this is an interesting thing overall. It's a film that can't be compared to a whole lot else. Like, we've compared it to a lot of things. Right. But, like, on it's always like, oh, it's kind of like this, but also like this and kind of like that as well. It's more like an amalgamation of a lot of different other things rather than, like, something that can be compared one-to-one with anything else. Right. Like, and, it does, and it does a good job of mixing all those elements up really well. Right. Um, so, yeah, overall, Thundercrack is a uh, great film. It's a wonderful film for us to be able to talk about on our 10th episode, Spectacular. And uh, I'm happy that we watched it. I'm happy to have watched it again and confirmed that it's an excellent film because it is. it was better than I anticipated it would be on a rewatch. It was... 
It exceeded all of my expectations. Absolutely. Oh. I wish that like there was a string of these uh, Kurt McDowell, George Kuchar yeah. adult films made, you know, over the course of like, you know, there being like a chain of like five or six of them. But right. this was the only one, unfortunately. They really blew their load on this one. Yeah, but it was a, it was a big, tasty load. Yeah, it was a big, messy load. <laughs> but I think we've got it all contained at this point. Yes. So let's take a moment then and take a look back at our first 10 episodes of the Raincoat Report. We were going to take a look back and give ratings to all of our episodes to date. And with this episode, although Jeremy might have blown his load already on that. But uh, let's go ahead and take a look back. So let's start with Dixie Ray Hollywood Star. Okay. Uh, Jeremy... What would be your rating? Uh, I'm going to say solid three, uh, three and a half out of five. Three and a half out of five? Yeah. Good. Uh, some exceptional scenes and uh, moments, but overall, not the most impressive film we've seen so far. I mean, technically impressive, but plot-wise, it's definitely in the porn version. It was a bit uh, light and uh, occasionally difficult to follow. Okay. And, uh, I don't know, I don't really like noir movies all that much, I guess. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I'd give it four out of five. Yeah. Um, I think I'm, it's possible I might have liked it a little bit more because I actually do kind of like those noir movies. Yeah. Like, they're not my go-to, but I, I can go for a good noir every now and then. And especially, like, noir-inspired things more so than just straight-up classic noir. Like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and this is, of course, the Who Framed Roger Rabbit of the 80s. Yeah. I think... except, <laughs> except, of course, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I think there was just something in the air yearning for what was perceived to be a simpler time. Right. And both mainstream Hollywood and the porn community felt that. So, yeah. Uh, you heard it here first. Dixie Ray Hollywood star is the porn version of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But, yeah. Jeremy, three and a half. Me, four. Me, four. Me, four. <laughs> What's up next? The Altar of Lust. Uh, two stars. Two stars? Two stars. Uh, I'm going to give it two and a half stars. You can't always just one-up me by half a star. I think that, to me, a two and a half star film is something that you should doesn't roll. bore me, uh, but I have very middling feelings about. I think once I get to two, I have to be at least somewhat bored by it, and I was never bored by this film. You know what? That's a good point. I'm going to add a half a star. All so, right. So yeah. we're, we're, we're going to meet there. Yeah. The soundtrack and the general uh, weirdness of the psychological uh, experiment within the film, I right. guess, kind of it, it created enough interest for me to not be bored. And then her wig almost fell off, which was funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, overall, I think it was just like... I just found the the dialogue with the therapist hilarious oh, right, along yeah, the way. Of course. And you're right, the soundtrack itself was pretty great. Uh, it was a good time. Next up was Pretty Peaches. Hmm. I'm going to do another three and a half on Pretty three Peaches. Three and a half on Pretty Peaches? Yeah. Three and a half is what I'll go with on yeah. Pretty Peaches as well. Like, it was funny and kind of weird, but 
also maybe just a little too uncomfortable for our modern uh, pussified sensibilities. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I'm just uh, not super, I guess, into rape. Yeah, I do. But, I mean, it does have some excellent stuff in it as well. John yeah. Leslie's good, as yeah. he is in most things. Um, the, the enema scene is just oh, bananas. Enema. Yeah, it's one of the favorite. Like I said, I went back and watched it a couple of times. So Right. It's a great film. Yeah. Even the the giant dong scene, aside from her crying through most of it, is pretty interesting. Right. Um, and, of course, uh, Desiree Cousteau is just a babe. So Yeah. Yep, yep. So three and a half here as well. Uh, next, an act of confession. I'm going to give that one a two. Give that one a two? Yeah. All uh, right. Because it got pretty boring because it was a more softcore film. Right. Um, I liked all the thematics of it. Right. Uh, but even that was done on like enough of a shoestring budget that it never felt like entirely like convincing, like something with a, a budget would have. I feel like if there is an uncut version of this film that includes her getting a facial from Jesus, which may or may not exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like that version's at least a two and a half star version. Yeah. Um, as it is, like, there's just a lot of meandering in the film. Mm-hmm. I do like it thematically, so I'm I'm gonna really? I'm gonna end up at two. Okay. Nothing so far has been like unwatchable. No, which not is at nice, all. but pulsating flesh comes close. But we'll get to that <laughs> in a moment. Uh, next is The Devil and Miss Jones. I'm going to give that one an old four. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. It's a, it's a classic of the genre, so it's important, I think, to see in general. Um, yeah. It's an enjoyable film, but it's not too great. Like, it's it doesn't ever go, I think, over the top enough for my sensibilities. Um, mm-hmm. It flirts with it, though, like with the snake stuff and... Uh, the lighter end of the enema spectrum. Right. I like it because it's got, um, the length of the film is great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, under 70 minutes, it's just, it gets in and gets out and it's, it, it really crams in all of the indecency, uh, all of the dirty talk and everything. She does all kinds of crazy stuff along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's an important piece of history, but I'm not necessarily judging it on that. Right. Uh, but yeah, I think, uh, four stars is good because it has a lot of good thematic elements that it doesn't like get like super deep into, but it gives it enough to like make you think a little bit about it, mm-hmm. but not in a way that like makes your boner go away. Cause you're trying to think so hard. Yeah. You don't want all your stupid ass blood to go back from your dick to your brain. <laughs> exactly. Idiot. Don't make us think that hard. Um, also, it introduced us to the teacher. Exactly. And that's that's important. That's an important part of our lives. Yeah. Have we blasphemed the teacher by not giving it a perfect five? <sighs> that's a deeper question. Let's Perhaps. Just, we'll Let's, move on We'll from move that on, one. and maybe on our next episode, if the teacher smites us enough, we'll revise our ratings. Yeah, we're going to atone. Uh, so next up is Hot and Saucy Pizza Girls. Five. Five, five, five. five. <laughs> the, 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 an emphatic five. I love it. Uh, I'm going to agree with that. Yeah. I was thinking four and a half for a minute, but then I really thought about it. And it it's just not brings like so I would, much joy into the heart. It's 
It's beautiful. Yeah. Send Bob Chen a check. Pizza girls know how to cook. You can find them in the book. Look under P for pizza girls. Right. Everything from the theme to the <laughs> goofball fact that they skateboard around and have the most complicated menu that I don't think anyone would really be capable of remembering. Uh, the uh, giant raping chicken. The, yeah, the night chicken. Who may have just been a man in a raincoat. I think it was always just the inspector. Right. But also maybe, I don't know, does he have a chicken suit? I think so. I'm not sure. I, I think the like... night chicken might be a man in a chicken suit. Right. Who is a serial rapist who is never brought to justice. Unfortunately. Well, let's get on HBO and do we really a need... documentary about the night chicken. <laughs> Do a 10-part Netflix series about... Yes. uh, (laughs) And we're going to reopen the Night Chicken case. Yeah, we're going to get It's going to be like when they did Surviving R. Kelly and they finally got him. Yeah, we're going to get you, Night Chicken. If you're listening, you're going down. Your time is up. (laughs) Uh, Honestly, if there was one movie project I could make, it would be a sequel to Hot and Saucy Pizza Girls. Oh, yeah, that would be great. Um. I wish you all had bought that house like a couple blocks down that had like a weird little like window area in the basement. You could have just passed the pizzas through there. <laughs> and there's our interior <laughs> shot. But you got the house with um, wood paneling and yeah. a plate with a bunch of presidents on it. Yeah, that was a that was a contingency <laughs> of the contract on here. All right, next up is uh, pulsating flesh. One point five. All right. Uh, I was bored and frustrated with the concept (laughs) and annoyed by how cheap everything was. Um, When I had a few drinks and we watched the trailer uh, a little while ago, though, I I was feeling a little bit more charitable. I could maybe push it up to a two uh, with a good buzz. (laughs) I I would give it a solid two. A solid number two? A solid number two. I think uh, overall, I definitely liked the film more than you did, but I didn't like, I didn't like it like a lot. Right. It definitely meandered a bit, and especially at the end, the plot just kind of faded away. Yeah, I'm not even going to advertise for that episode of the podcast because <laughs> <laughs> it's not out. It's not out yet. Uh, yeah. It's I mean, obviously, of, it'll be out before anybody be, listens yeah. to this. It'll be out next week from so. Get on your calendars and date it back from whenever you hear this. <laughs> right. But I I appreciated the film in the sense that, like, the concept was just goofy. <laughs> I think that, like, having this guy, uh, Peter Longfellow, as more or less the, the star of the film is humorous to me because he's not particularly uh, charismatic. No. And I think that the idea of his uh, his ultra fertility or however you would put that yeah. his uh, his uh, ultra virility, yes. I guess I would say for, yeah, uh, is hilarious. Particularly that like using a condom, uh, having an IUD, using birth control, all of those things would still lead to him getting people pregnant. Even if he pulls out, you're going to get pregnant. The television show that he's on and doing all this fucking on, on TV. Yeah. Uh, the, the Joan Carson show. The Joan Carson show. Uh, the 
couch that's used in the sectional that's used in multiple scenes, uh, the uh, the set of the Joan Carson show, the stock footage audience. Oh, I love them. Uh, I'm going to give it two and a half, actually. All right, I'll push it up to two. You won right. me over. Okay, so two, two and a half. All right. Next up, corruption. Uh. Four, four and a half. Yeah, I would agree. Four and a half. Uh, it's not a perfect film, but it's very good. Uh, it's it has this like it has this air of David Lynch in it. Not uh, it's certainly not as uh, complex as anything that David Lynch does, but it has a. Uh, it kind of wants to be, but it never quite gets there. Yeah, but it's still like as an adult film, it just has this very unique flavor to it. Uh, it has a bit of a, a mindfuck element to it. There's a constant what's going on here feeling. Yeah. It's all about like creating a certain tone of mystery, and it works very well. Uh, and then, of course, you have Larry, who would drink a mile of piss just to see that woman's <laughs> pussy. So much piss. It's so much piss, as we talked about thoroughly in that episode. Giving it four and a half miles of piss out of five. <laughs> Uh, and then the next film would be Prisoner of Paradise. Um, it's a, probably about a three, I would think. It's pretty middling overall. Yeah. Like, it has some good moments. Like, I love uh, the guy playing the Commandant. Hans. Yeah, I love Hans. Uh, I love seeing John Holmes' big half-erect dick flop around and <laughs> attack women. Uh, he's... He's far too full of cocaine to get all the way hard, but right. that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Um, I don't like that this movie destroyed their the Bob Chin John Holmes relationship. Yeah, that that does suck. That makes me sad. But uh, overall, like, like it it was pretty committed, I guess, to its idea overall. But I right. don't feel like it really exploited it as fully as they could have. Yeah. Um, and I don't really feel like the story was super well developed. You had those two nurses who were basically just kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, props. Right. Yeah. Um, they they weren't given really any agency in the film. Yeah. And then they got maybe pregnant. Also, the film oh, yeah. has historical inaccuracies of <laughs> insisting the war ended at sometime in 1945. Right. Right. Or 1948. Whenever the hell they were wrong. Yeah. It's it's confusing. No, I fully agree. I think three is the right point. It's definitely better than pulsating flesh, but not as good as pretty peaches. Uh, so I'd agree with everything you said. Thank you. And then finally, Thundercrack, where you, you might have... Uh, I said five and I stand by it. Yes, uh, I agree. It's a great film. It's unlike anything else. Like I can't say that... You know, again, we've drawn comparisons to other films, but it's like it has aspects of this and aspects of that. But as far as the singular film's concerned, it's yeah. it's its own thing. It's very interesting. It has such great dialogue and character development, and the plot goes in so many weird directions, and it's full of different types of depravity. And even though the hardcore sex isn't uh, quite as exploited as it is in other films... It's probably better for it because just the the narrative gets so much time to bleed through and like right. uh, uh, breathe. Yeah, like I said, like the sex I don't think is 
like the main selling point of the movie necessarily. Right. Uh, but it, like I said at the beginning, it's just like another layer of grime that gets added to all the other weird shenanigans that are going on. Yep. So yeah, uh, that would be our first 10 episodes uh, yeah. rated. Yeah. Go back and check them out if you skipped any. Yeah. I mean, we know you have been. The numbers are low. <laughs> <laughs> The numbers for the first couple of episodes are great. Yeah. So what? Come back. (laughs) (laughs) No, we love you all. Yeah, we love you all. We're happy that you guys are uh, on this ride with us. Um, You know, again, our social media at Raincoat Report on Twitter and Instagram. RaincoatReport at gmail.com if you want to send us an email. Um, we're looking at different things for our show, mm-hmm. uh, looking at, you know, we talked earlier about having guests, uh, doing some different types of films along yeah, the way, some newer stuff, some, newer stuff some, some weirder stuff, right? Um, you know, we'll go in a few different directions. Yeah. We'll, uh, keep it fancy. Yeah. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it and I hope you've been able to check out some of the films we've been talking about. Yeah. Uh, if you have, let us know which one's you found enjoyable down on that old social media farm. Yeah. And if there's uh, other films that you want us to cover, uh, shoot us a line on social media. We're there. I'm there. I'm not doing anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Uh, Jeremy's completely devoted to the raincoat report at this point. Mm -hmm. And uh, a few weeks down the line, I might end up having to be too. So, uh, you know, all right. You know, the economy, man. Yeah, it's great. We're gonna do. We need to turn out an like an episode a day. Yeah, I'll just I'll be homeless, so I'll just stay here. <laughs> I'll sleep in your new cabinet. Excellent. You can live in our cabinet like a coffin. <laughs> crush your crush your hands across your chest. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Excellent. I think I got it. Oh wait, no, I got it. Yeah, get it over those nips. Yeah, those those are indecent. <laughs> It is an abomination. It sure is, and so is this show. And um, how long have we been recording now? Uh, three years. Okay, that sounds about right. You want to go uh, do something else for a little bit? All right, yeah, let's do that. So, okay. uh, for Jeremy, this is Boss reminding you once again to help us keep Forty Second Street alive, and don't forget your raincoat. Yeah. 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 A toast. To love and happiness, and to a life that won't go sour and turn every cucumber into a pickle.